That's the same atrocious aftershave you wore in court three years ago. Yeah, I keep getting it for Christmas. Did you get my card? I got it, thank you. And how is Officer Stewart? The one who was first to see my basement. Stewart's fine. Emotional problems out here. Do you have any problems, Will? No. No, of course you don't. I'm glad you came. My callers are mostly clinical psychologists from Cornfield University somewhere. Second raters, the lot. Dr. Bloom showed me your article on surgical addiction in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. And? Very interesting. Even to a layman. I want you to help me, Dr. Lecter. Yes. I thought so. It's about Atlanta and Birmingham. Yes? You read about it? In the papers. I don't tear out the articles. I wouldn't want them to think I was dwelling on anything morbid. You want to know how he's choosing them, don't you? I thought you might have some ideas. Why should I tell you? You get to see the file on this case. And there's another reason. Pray tell. But you might be curious to see if you're smarter than the person I'm looking for. Then by implication, you think you're smarter than me since you caught me. No. I know that I'm not smarter than you. Then how did you catch me, Will? You had disadvantages. What disadvantages? You're insane. You are very tan, Will. Your hands are rough. They don't look like cop's hands anymore. And that shaving lotion is something a child would select. It has a ship on the bottle, doesn't it? Don't think you can persuade me with appeals to my intellectual vanity. I don't think I'll persuade you at all. You'll either do it or you won't. Besides, we have Dr. Bloom working on it, and he's the best. Do you have the file with you? Yes. Pictures? Yes. Let me have them, and I might consider it. No. Dream much, Will. Goodbye, Dr. Lecter. You haven't threatened to take away my books yet. Let me have the file and I'll tell you what I think. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would a review make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? My fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 355, Manhunter. Holy shit. What? It's just registering with me, 355 episodes. I know there was a time where I would, we'd get to like episode 60 and I'd like jokingly be like, oh, who would have thought? Wow. This is a movie that I've definitely done a 180 on since the first time I ever watched it. I don't think I told you this part, but I'm pretty sure I put it on HBO on demand in like 2006 or something from the description knew what it was and that Hannibal Lecter was in it. And I think I got to the scene where Brian Cox is playing Hannibal Lecter and I just shut it off. Yeah. 
you had this idea of what Hannibal Lecter was. Right. From Silence of the Lambs. It's, it's not this. Yeah, I wouldn't say that I did a complete 180 on. I definitely watched this movie and liked it well enough Yeah, at one point years ago, but didn't really think too much of it. In fact, I probably would have said I liked Red Dragon more for years. I'm sure I would. At a certain point, yeah. but only off of a vague memory of what this was. There was a time I was telling you where I thought it was a TV movie for some reason. Yeah, which I can buy that that came from somewhere. I don't know why I yeah. thought that, but it isn't. And I think that because of recent reevaluations and critical reappraisals and whatnot, Manhunter is now considered this jewel. Oh, yeah. One of the more underrated thrillers of the 1980s. Some people have it ahead of The Silence oh, of wow. the Lambs. Yeah. I wouldn't. I'm not there. The Silence of the Lambs is one of my yeah. top 10, probably, mm-hmm. but. It's not uncommon to see people say that now. This is the real gem of the Thomas Harris Lecter novel adaptations, that kind of thing. It certainly has a style all its own. And I do think that even though I prefer Lambs, man's directing and Mm -hmm. the visual presentation in this is even better than what Demi does with the Sansa Lambs. And I'm pretty sure that Demi must have watched this movie and used it as inspiration because there's a lot of weird similarities that I don't think you would have to have. Yeah, more so than you would think, and probably not what you would think on first watch of the two, but the more you watch the two of them, you see the crossover. Obviously, story-wise, there's a lot of similarities just based on the source novels, but yeah, just choices. Choices Mm -hmm. that both directors made that they didn't necessarily have to make. It was either parallel thinking or definitely a lot of influence. But anyway, before we get into... Manhunter, let's remind everyone to follow the show on X slash Twitter at Greatest Pod. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever you're finding us. Please email the show, greatestpod at gmail.com, where you can request a free sticker or you can tell us your anecdotes about your favorite movies or a movie we've done on the show. If you've done a listener request, we'd love to hear why you picked it or what your relationship with the movie is. And even if you've seen any of the new releases out there as we're heading into Oscar season and you want to tell us about it, whether it's on Netflix or in the theater, whatever you're doing, we're open to having listener reviews now. Yeah, we've got an email. People use it. And as far as listener requests go, we have passed the deadline into 2024, and what we have decided to do is announce we have one slot left that's where we've ended up it will be for august yes and the cost will be a hundred dollars first come first serve one for the year anything beyond 2024 is unknown at this point so it could be the last listener request we ever do maybe not we may do many more but at this point in time august one slot one hundred dollars if it's a movie that is something beyond the mainstream or something weird or very long, we may have to negotiate the price a little bit, something like that. But as long as it's a narrative feature film that we can have access to, 100 bucks. that's it. That's the last one, unless maybe we change our <laughs> minds about what's... the only uh, Leaving that door open a no, little bit. No, all you're, yeah. laugh- you're laughing because you're thinking I'm going to just change everything. Okay, I just yeah. meant about December. There yeah, may be yeah. one other slot. I okay. think... We're down to one, though. Right. It could be two, but I think one. 
Anyway, let's get into Manhunter. Enough about that stuff. Uh-huh. We'll we'll go over it again at the end <laughs> to confuse Great. everyone yes. further. Manhunter was released in 1986. The film was directed by Michael Mann, screenplay by Mann, based on the 1981 novel Red Dragon by Thomas Harris. The budget of the film was between 14 and 15 million and the box office came in at 8.6 million making this a box office bomb opening to mixed reviews manhunter fared poorly at the box office at the time of its release making only 8.6 million in the US it has been reassessed in more recent reviews and now enjoys a more favorable reception as both the acting and the stylized visuals have been appreciated better in later years. Its resurgent popularity, which may be due to later adaptations of Harris's books and Peterson's success in CSI Crime Scene Investigation, oh, yeah. has seen it labeled as a cult film. So before we get into this, we'll talk a little bit more about Red Dragon at the end, but let's just talk about the four primary Okay. Adaptations. We're going to skip Hannibal Rising because I don't think either of us have seen it. And I don't know enough about the TV show either. So we're just going to talk a little bit about Manhunter, The Silence of the Lambs, Red Dragon, and Hannibal. What is your overall feeling about those movies, the series? How into it are you? Well, I love Silence of the Lambs. Everything else for a while was just sort of throwaway to me. Although... Anthony Hopkins playing that Hannibal Lecter role is just so iconic. So it's almost worth having those other movies just to have more of that. But then Manhunter, I've really come to love just over the past four or five years. Yeah. I would say that they're all enjoyable to a certain degree. Yeah. Hannibal is the worst. For sure. I don't love the recasting of Clarice. There's nothing they could have done about it. Jodie Foster said no and didn't want to do it. But that's always a bummer. For sure. It would have been weird, though, because of the way that Hannibal goes. Yeah, well, that I think that would have been that's it's weird thing. as it is. It's right. just stupid. Yeah, I know. Gary Oldman's bizarre performance yeah. and everything in the movie with Leota and everything, it makes it worth watching. Yeah. I saw it on Valentine's weekend, the weekend it came out, at a sold-out show back wow. when movies were popular. Yeah. And I can't say that I didn't have a good time. I can remember seeing it. And there are parts where the audience is going to lose their shit because there's crazy things that happen in it. Yeah. But is it a good movie? No. (laughs) The Silence of the Lambs, though, is probably a top 10 for me. I watch it at least once a year. Absolutely. I watch it on VHS. I watch it on Blu-ray. I watch it on streaming. And I watch it on 4K. Cover all the bases. Love it. Yep. I've read that book and I've read... Red Dragon. I don't think I ever read anything else beyond that. But I would say my most cringeworthy take for years was that I liked Red Dragon more. But I think I was just seduced by such a crazy cast. That cast is so good. And Philip Seymour Hoffman is good in it. Yeah, and his performance as Lowndes is preferable to Stephen Lang's in this one. For sure. For the most part... It's just a generic, slick, modern MTV take on the material. I would say there are elements as far as Francis Dollarhide's backstory that are probably closer to the book, but that ultimately is unappealing to me because I kind of like how mysterious he is in this movie. Yeah, I rewatched Red Dragon within the last couple of years, and I I did like it, but 
it's fine. You know, it's nice having Anthony Hopkins in that role again in something that's not Hannibal. Yes, it's definitely better than Hannibal <laughs> yeah, right. as a movie. Yeah. Although I would argue that the best, most crazy, enjoyable parts of Hannibal might be better than anything in Red Dragon. <laughs> that's probably true, yeah. I do like the opening of Red Dragon because it, it opens. Well, it might not be the first scene, but I thought it was. It's where they actually show the Will Graham Hannibal confrontation where he catches him and yeah. you know gets stabbed in the process of it. I, I think that that's a kind of a cool way to open the story because you don't see any of that in this. Right. I wish that I would have had a little bit more time to rewatch Red Dragon, but it's not available to stream uh. for free. Well, there you go, people. So I didn't really want to pay $5 to watch Red Dragon. Yep. I hope everybody's happy with all this shit. Oh, Wait. we don't need to rent movies anymore. We don't need physical media. Why are you paying for movies? Everything's available on streaming. <laughs> go screw. <laughs> well, it was available. It just it cost money. No, I know. But Red Dragon was one of those movies that I swear was on Netflix all the time. And for those of you who have not seen Manhunter or would like to rewatch it for the purposes of listening to this podcast, it is also not available to stream for free, and you'll have to rent it. So that's where <laughs> yeah, we're Yeah, that's at. what I did. I was telling you, I'm now making a list of movies that I need to own on physical media, and this is on it. Yeah, I think I have this on VHS as well. In fact, actually, I can see it. It's right there. So yeah, <laughs> I was actually going to watch it on VHS, but yep. I always think I'm going to do that for the notes, and then I've yet to do it. Just can't commit. <laughs> Part of it is there's no closed captions on the That's tough. the VHS. At our age, we don't know what the hell these people are saying. Manhunter becomes this strange neon 80s curiosity, a blend of Michael Mann's Miami Vice decadence with Thomas Harris's Lecter-verse that we've all uh-huh. come to know and yep. has its own unique vibe to it, which I think is probably the product of Demi, but also Demi by way of Mann, because as I was saying to you, I, I, I'm convinced that Demi had to be influenced by a lot of the things in this movie and some of that comes from Harris too but in a weird way these four films take place in a universe that is sort of like ours Mm -hmm. but there's little subtle curiosities that make it not quite seem like reality for example in both The Silence of the Lambs and Manhunter Hannibal Lecter is being held in a cell that's not really in a real prison. It doesn't look like it's in a real place that anyone would ever be. It's like a Magneto's prison in X-Men. Yeah. It it does seem like out of a movie. (laughs) Yeah, Right, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of very cinematic choices, and I don't know if that's just because Man started it and then Demi took that up or what, but... Yeah, I mean, Demi took it to another level because that prison in... Sounds of the Lambs is insane, but it's like so cool. Well, not the one where he starts, but yeah, the yeah. one where they're holding him later. Well, yeah. Moving him around. Right. Yeah. It's a tale as old as time and one we dove into way back when we covered True Detective season one, which is what does it take to catch a serial killer? Where must a man go within himself? It's a black sickness, a plague upon our society, but it's also a game one that our quote-unquote hero, Will Graham, shares with the imprisoned Dr. Lecter and with the new kid in town, the Tooth Fairy. And by game, I guess you could also say it's a movie. Yeah. (laughs) Your life's a movie. It's interesting. It's exciting. It's entertainment. But it's also horrifying and real in terms of what happens in real life. This is not 
invented for a movie. There are real serial killers. Yeah. And horrible shit like this happens. It sort of dangles its toe into the same waters as our modern true crime obsession. It's like, how much entertainment can you really take from this? But also, a similar branch out of that is the idea of a man like Will Graham and him becoming a man like these people he's catching and yeah. to get into that same mindset to be like this. Now, I really like the idea of the connection between Will Graham and Hannibal Lecter and the movie is definitely like going for that, but it doesn't feel like there's really enough scenes between the two of them to be hitting that as hard as Yeah, it's just a suggestion more yeah. than than something that's super heavily emphasized and there's suggestions of a lot of things including mm-hmm something we talked about a lot when we were watching a few of the scenes before we started recording, which is that deleted scene that makes its way into the director's right. cut at the end of the film when he goes to see the family that doesn't end up getting killed. That's a suggestion in the film, too, where he's so obsessed with those pictures that Crawford shows him of the dead families and tying that in with his own family and then him imagining the next family. A lot of that stuff you can accomplish in a novel because you're inside the characters' right. heads. In the movie, you can see why they cut that scene out of the theatrical cut because you're like, who are these people now? Uh-huh. He's showing up and it's sort of the same thing. It's yeah. a suggestion. Him and Lecter being two sides of the same coin is also more of a suggestion, but they also use the tooth fairy in that too. It's That's like true, they're yeah. all part of the same game. Uh-huh. They're all characters in it. And I guess what things like True Detective Season 1 or Manhunter or even Mindhunter or some of these yeah. other things are, are questioning is when a man who is inherently good has to enter into this game, I know what does it do to them? Do they become just like these other people, well, devoid of humanity and empty and all those things? Going back to the whole series, everything works so well in Silence of the Lamb, Silence of the Lambs, and the performances, but the Clarice and Hannibal chemistry connection, whatever, you almost seem like there's more opportunity for that with these two because of the history. They worked on cases together. They have this confrontation. Will is the reason that Hannibal Lecter is in prison, but you don't really get as much of that as you do with the Clarice character. Yeah. Well, I do think they were trying to go for two different things, but Michael Mann did address the temptation to include more Lecter, and we'll talk about that more later. We're certainly going to discuss our feelings and thoughts on the differences between... Anthony Hopkins and and Brian Cox's performances in the same character. And I think that they're both good, but they are completely different. The version of Lecter that Brian Cox is doing, I don't really think you can do that in The Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. I don't see that working with a woman where there's supposed to be a vague idea of sexuality going on. Uh And you're not sure if they're flirting or how much Lecter is showing of his real emotions or how much Clarice is getting sucked into it or any of that stuff. Because the version of Lecter that Cox is doing is way colder in a way. Which sounds weird because you're like, how could you be colder than Hopkins? But Hopkins still had this charm. It was a a (sighs) dead-eyed, scary charm, but there was still kind of a charm there. That's why it's like when you watch this for the first time after you've seen Silence of the Lambs, that's always going to work against this movie. The Hopkins performance is one of the definitive performances of film history. Yes. So it's like hard to top that. But what I like about the Cox performance and the connection with the Will Graham character is he's bitter, but also sort of impressed with Will. 
there's this annoyance that he's the guy that caught him, but there's a respect there too. Yes, he knows that he's more intelligent than Will, and that does bother him that he was caught. Yeah, but he is polite enough to pay him the respect, even though he would be entertained by him getting killed too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also kind of how he approaches Clarice up until probably the very end. The, yeah. The of weird Silence part about Land. that movie is more like. At a certain point, he's more invested in her. Yeah. And he well, wants to keep this going. It is possible that if Cox had read the Silence of the Lambs script, that he would have approached that differently because the way that Lecter would interact with an attractive young woman would just be different than his nemesis. Right. Because he is bringing a lot more arrogance, I think, than Hopkins brings. Even though you could definitely say that he's arrogant in the Silence of the Lambs, it's different, though. For sure. He's wearing his arrogance more on his sleeve in Manhunter, yeah. where he's kind of strutting a little bit, mm-hmm. peacocking. <laughs> Manhunter is an obsessively visual film utilizing vibrant color to denote mood, atmosphere, and emotion. As many, many writers have highlighted, blue is a positive force in the film as it's associated with Will's wife, Molly, sex, home, family, and calm while green is meant to feel subversive and unsettling, often including various purples and magentas. Green is associated with Francis Dollarhide, a.k.a. the Tooth Fairy. This movie was originally going to be titled Red Dragon, the same as the novel. However, when Year of the Dragon from 1985 Ah. became a box office failure, executive producer Dino De Laurentiis decided to avoid a dragon title. In May 1991, NBC decided to capitalize off of The Silence of the Lambs by airing the film under the title Red Dragon, colon, The Curse of Hannibal Lecter. Wow. That's a regrettable Yeah, decision. really. I do think Manhunter is a cool title. Well, Man hated it. Did so he? So there's that. Maybe it's, I just think it makes it unique to the series. It came from a review of the book written by Stephen King. Yeah, okay. He used the word Manhunter in his review of Red Dragon. I don't know how well it fits, but I just think it's like a cool title to use. One of the other things they were trying to avoid was people thinking it was a martial arts film or something to do with Bruce Lee or something like that. Well, not really knowing the series when the movie Red Dragon came out, I did think that that was a weird title. Now, I think a lot of people that are fans of the series just are so used to it being the first book. I didn't really know it, and I'm like, the title's Red Dragon? That seems strange. Well, when we get into the plot and we get to Francis Dollarhide appearing and we talk about the choices with not showing yeah. the tattoos and stuff, it ends up making it make more sense that they don't call well, it Red Dragon true. because they don't emphasize that at all. Yeah, they do make a much bigger deal about that in the Brett Ratner. Yeah, which is closer to what's going on in the book. Yeah, yeah. But I think that there's still enough there. They just kind of omit a lot of the Tooth Fairy backstory in Manhunter, Mm -hmm. which I think is better because I get that part of it is humanizing him, but I think the relationship with Reba in the film already humanizes him, and you kind of feel empathy already. I know. So you don't need to go into like the boo-hoo sob story of why he became a serial (laughs) killer, (laughs) which I definitely remember from the book. And it is disturbing, but I don't know that I need to see that on screen, which I think they do a lot more of that in Red Dragon. Dino De Laurentiis produced Dune and Blue Velvet, and initially David Lynch was potentially going to direct Manhunter. However, Lynch rejected the job after 
finding the story to be, quote, violent and completely degenerate. Huh. Which is funny, considering most people would probably think Blue Velvet is totally. degenerate. Yeah. In the end, though, Lynch's work did end up having a major effect on the future of Hannibal Lecter, as Anthony Hopkins has stated that Jonathan Demme was inspired to cast him after seeing him in Lynch's film The Elephant Man. Oh, wow. Another De Laurentiis director of that era, David Cronenberg, was also considered at one point. Lynch and Cronenberg tackling this subject matter would have been fascinating to see, I think, but man is such the right pick in the end. Absolutely. I love it. When you think about him bringing in his visual style from Thief and Miami Vice and translating that into this dark, twisted serial killer story... I think it's genius. I, of course, it didn't work financially, but I love it. Yeah, totally. And he brings this flair to it and the style that totally makes it its own thing. When I think about David Lynch doing something like this, and I was watching Return of the Jedi the other day, the idea of him being involved in that would have been insane. They have brought- you ever heard him tell that story about going up and spending time with george lucas no i've just no i've more seen the stuff where he was like he was never really interested but yeah but he he felt like out of respect he should go and meet with him in person to tell him though it's just a funny story about him spending a day with george lucas (laughs) one of the key things that drew writer director michael mann to thomas harris's novel red dragon was graham's path of self-destruction in the service of catching and stopping the killer quote It fascinated me so much, it made this, to me, a totally unique detective story and one that had dynamics and complexities that I had never seen before. During the three years he spent working on the script, Michael Mann also spent time with the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit where he claimed to have met people very much like the character of Will Graham. This level of research led Brent E. Turvey to describe the film as, quote, one of the most competent blends of cutting-edge forensic science and criminal profiling at the time, Mann also spent several years corresponding with imprisoned murderer Dennis Wayne Wallace. Wallace had been motivated by his obsession for a woman he barely knew and believed that Iron Butterfly's Inagata De Vita was, quote, their song. This oh. connection inspired Mann to include the song in the film. Okay. Doing this show learning about Michael Mann and the inspiration for certain characters. We talked about it on Thief. We talked about it on Heat. He did seem to be really pulling a lot of real-world... Prison uh, people. Yeah, like... (laughs) Often involved with prison. Totally. Manhunter is set prior to The Silence of the Lambs, in case you weren't sure, and it tells the story of FBI profiler Will Graham, played by William Peterson who was lured out of early retirement to assist in the search for and capture of a killer known as the Tooth Fairy. And this is fresh off to live and die in L.A.? Was that 85? Yeah. And kind of playing a similar type dude? Well, that's what got him this part. Gotcha, okay. Because Mann and Friedkin at one point were close, and Mann had seen footage. In doing so, Graham must confront the demons of his past and turn to the incarcerated Hannibal Lecter, played by Brian Cox, who once nearly killed Graham. In many ways, the relationship between Graham and Lecter is similar to the relationship that Lecter shares with Clarice Starling, but it's also much more personal. 
And so Graham always remains wary of Lecter, and thus Lecter is less of a factor in Manhunter as he is in Lambs. The film focuses on the forensic work carried out by the FBI to track down killers and shows the long-term effects that cases like the one in this film have on profilers such as Graham, highlighting similarities between him and his quarry. The opening of the movie is super haunting. Mm. That slow-motion intruder footage with the yeah. flashlight going up the steps. And it kind of actually feels different from everything else in the movie. Yeah, because I think it's shot on VHS yeah. to replicate the home movies that uh-huh. we see later. Tense electronic score. We'll circle back and talk about that later. And then you have the unsuspecting family waking up in bed before it, it cuts to Manhunter, right. the word coming up on the screen. The backstory is this. Will Graham is a former FBI criminal profiler who has retired following a mental breakdown after being attacked by a cannibalistic serial killer, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, whom he captured. We see him at his beach home, Mm -hmm. as is usually the case. You are having a hard time with the finances. (laughs) I just think you still don't quite grasp inflation. Like what has changed with real estate? Inflation. Yeah. But I'm not an expert. I'm sure we have economic people listening. I I don't know. It's just this beachfront estate. It's not like a mansion, but it's a nice house. Yeah, it's a beach house. If it's your full-time house, though, back in these days, I think it's pretty doable. He probably got a nice government payout for almost getting murdered. (laughs) Very calm vibes, calming look. This is the 80s. This is Michael Mann. Obviously, you're getting reminded of Miami Vice. We're down in Florida. We have the shortest swim trunks imaginable. (laughs) Graham's wife, Molly, played by Kim Greist, and a young son. After the spooky home invasion over the opening credits, the first scene is Graham being approached at his beach home by his former FBI superior, Jack Crawford, played in this film by Dennis Farina, who is in desperate pursuit of a new serial killer and wants Graham to help. Graham is reluctant. Molly is not pleased. <laughs> no. She doesn't even look at yeah. Crawford. They're doubling down, though, with Will Graham's just need to do this by putting this beautiful life in front of him. He's willing to walk away from this to get back involved in this world. Promising his wife that he will do nothing more than find evidence and not risk physical harm, Graham agrees to visit the most recent crime scene, which is in Atlanta, where he tries to enter the mindset of a killer dubbed the Tooth Fairy by the police for the bite marks left on his victims. What we're introduced to right away, and you have to keep in mind the whole time, and again, this movie, for as tight as it is on some details, is very vague on plot stuff sometimes, so I don't even know if I feel like the lunar cycle thing is harped on enough, but we're introduced to that right away, so we have a countdown a countdown clock, mm-hmm. 30 days or so until the next full moon, more or less, is what we're thinking. Yes. So that's always at play. Just like in The Silence of the Lambs, there's a little bit of a period where you know the action is going to be, where we know the killer is not going to kill anyone necessarily new, that's although right. he actually does, but you know what I mean. Uh-huh. You have this moment. It's interesting watching this movie now, after we just talked about May, December, which is a very complicated and complex movie, and there's a lot more than just entering the mind of another person in that movie. But it's kind of the same thing here. You have a person whose job it is 
to enter the mind of someone mm. distasteful. Now, I know in May, December that both people turn out to be distasteful. Sure. And presumably Will Graham is a decent man deep down, but still. Yeah. Same idea. Now, why don't you oh. compare oh for everyone how Crawford gets Starling involved versus how he gets Graham involved here? With Graham, he has to appeal to the professional yeah, yeah. side, but with Clarice, it's like, hey, why don't you go over there? He's going to be interested in you. <laughs> strut your stuff in front of Lecter's window. I know. It is weird. You do 100% buy that Graham would be interested in going back to the Lecter character because of the history working on cases. There is a relationship there. It sounds the limbs. It kind of seems crazy. They're just like, well, let's go see what this guy's up to. Maybe he'll help us out. Well, we don't know what else to do. Why don't we just this trot this once woman before. out in front of him? Yeah. <laughs> I know. That's part of it, though. When I was talking about these movies existing in sort of an alternate reality, yeah. this is some reality where we just keep turning to this total psychopathic cannibal and just being like, hey, could you help us? Yeah, that's the thing. You could buy that Will Graham would just get there on his own and be like, well, I have this history with this dude. Our yeah, whole... and it feels way more organic. He's like, right. I got to get back into the mindset. And they actually did have a history where they worked on at least a case together because that yeah. was how they were together originally. Will Graham was investigating the Hannibal deaths and yeah. using him as a consultant for that. And then it was like, oh, wait, it's you. <laughs> I think it was just one of the victims was going okay. to him as a psychiatrist. Okay. Yeah, so something. he got he was being questioned. In, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was sort of like how they find Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. Where okay. You're okay. being questioned about and then because you're not really like a suspect, but then yeah, you realize right. something. Well, there was a previous connection anyway that at least made sense. Whereas in Silence of the Lambs, it is sort of a leap to be like, well, maybe we would just try Lecter again without Will Grimm. Yeah, I'm assuming in the novel, there's probably a throwaway sentence somewhere where either the narrator or the omniscient narrator or Crawford or someone says like, oh, Graham's, he's been retired for years. He's not, he, he ain't coming back. Yeah, right. And then that's the end of that. Yeah. And that explains where he is or something. pretty good, don't we? We have more than good. All that happened to you before I let you know that. I went back. I don't want to look at that. I wouldn't get deeply involved. You never even see me or know my name. If they find him, they'll have to take him down. I think you've already decided and you're not really asking. If I were asking. Stay here with me. Me and Kevin. But it's selfish and I know it. As mentioned, when Will and Molly are together, it's often with a blue filter. This scene of them laying in bed where he's telling her, like, basically, I, I'm, I'm going to do this, yeah. where he's acting like he's asking her, but, you know. They shot that in daylight, Oh, and it looks like it's at night yeah. because they use that blue filter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it looks really weird. 
there's something about this movie though the combination of all of these weird visuals and those colors yeah. and then this electronic score that's oh, very unique and then the subject matter but also these unique performances because i think peterson's really good in this film and we're going to talk about that several times but all the other performances are good too yeah and and unique and interesting there's something about it it just burrows in your brain no i know from strictly a style standpoint if people ask me for recommendations just for like worlds that you want to be in stylistically this would be like right up there on the list yeah this is definitely as cool as it gets yeah in terms of just slick thrillers uh-huh. it looks really great everything is an experience yeah i know we overuse it and sometimes it's tongue-in-cheek yeah. but it's definitely more of a vibe than right. I, I know it gets a lot of credit for some of the forensic and the police work stuff and there are great details in it and really cool stuff but i don't think that's where the strength is i, I think agree. the strength is just sort of how it makes you feel totally every shot is interesting every shot is meaningful I'm not going to get into every nitty-gritty detail because this isn't like a super visual podcast. But, for example, even the scene with Graham and Lecter, the way that the bars in the scene don't move. So it looks the same either way, depending on who's on what side. Uh You know what I mean? Like that kind of a thing. Everything is just this deliberate choice. And there's so much that a more straightforward, normal, boring director wouldn't probably do. And I'm not bagging on... Brett Ratner, yeah. even though I could, I mean, you know, I think his career's over and he's yeah. canceled and a douchebag. Sure. But yeah, that isn't even my point. But I'm just saying the proof is Red Dragon. That's just a much more uh-huh. paint by numbers director for hire type stuff. And this has that artistic flair of a real auteur. Mm-hmm. And it's fun when creatives take really pulpy pop material yeah. because. The rumor has always been that Demi didn't really give a shit about Silence of the Lambs. He was basically a director for hire. And I know. The movie's awesome. He made it this like iconic thing. It, it swept the major Academy yeah, Awards yeah. and is one of the great films. I don't know. You bring that in and, you know, it's not like Spielberg wrote Jurassic Park or came up with oh, it. It's right, a very, yeah. or Jaws. Those are two paperback yeah. novels people read on the beach. And those are like iconic classic films. Totally. Sometimes it just all clicks whenever you have a a great filmmaker given really poppy material. Going back to what's going on at the beach house here, <laughs> I always find it weird. In these, for the kid, these parents are like so sexualized, it seems like. A hypersexual relationship between these two, you don't think? Do they do anything in front of the kid? No, I don't know. I just mean, I don't know. It just seems like quite a world. Well, that's probably just more in. of the style choices. Yeah. I think you're just uncomfortable with William <laughs> Peterson's short length. <laughs> His legs like so on display. He's so tan in this movie. <laughs> if you remember, William Peterson had a small role as a bouncer in Michael Mann's 1981 film Thief, which we covered Ooh. early last year. But it was his performance in To Live and Die in L.A., of which Mann had seen footage already, which got him cast in Manhunter as Will Graham, Don Johnson, Jeff Bridges, Timothy Dalton, Kevin Klein, Richard Gere, Mel Gibson, Mickey Rourke, Kyle MacLachlan and Harrison Ford were all also considered or in the mix. Peterson spent time with officers of the Chicago PD researching the role. For Jack Crawford, the role that would be inhabited by Scott Glenn a few years later in Lambs, Max von Sydow, Terry Kaiser, Brian Dennehy, and Charles Grodin were all in play before Farina landed the role. Grodin 
it, it would be impossible for that not to be funny to me then. <laughs> no. Well, Dennehy makes me think of if it was a TV movie, Dennehy would be the Well, guy. <laughs> it's funny you say that because Dennehy is a major reason why it ended up being Brian Cox, but we'll get to that okay. later. Farina also appeared in Thief as well as Crime Story and several episodes of Miami Vice. Oh, yeah. Didn't Michael Mann kind of make him a guy? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Farina had read the source novel previously. What we're seeing early here with Graham is he's following in the killer's footsteps, retracing. There's a lot of sensations of doubling because you're getting a little bit of deja vu from the opening of the film now Uh because he's walking up the same steps. Now he's doing it. The same idea that is going to sort of recur throughout the movie that he's the same as these guys. I like the juxtaposition of this cool, serene, calm, quiet house. He's by himself, and it stays focused on him for a while. And then, boom, you see that room with the bloody mask. Yeah, you're like, what I know. the fuck? Yeah. It is a room torn apart. Just a disaster. Well, that shot alone, you're not putting on TV. It's no, not, obviously yeah. not a TV movie then, unless it's, it's like, like HBO uh, or something. Something on a seven. kitchen sliding door used a glass cutter anchor to a suction cup his entry was skillful all the prints are smooth gloves blonde hair strong size 12 shoe imprint blood ab positive type from saliva on glass from licking the suction cup why didn't he care that he left saliva on the glass it was hot out that night so inside the house must have felt cool to him. The intruder cut Charles Leeds' throat as he was rising, then shot Mrs. Leeds. Bullet entered right of her navel and lodged in her lumbar spine, but she died of strangulation. Moderate elevation of serotonin and marked increase of free histamine level in gunshot wound indicates she lived at least five minutes after she was shot. All her other injuries are post-mortem. Direction and velocity of blood stains on east wall indicate arterial spray. Even with his throat cut, Leeds tried to fight because the intruder was moving to the children's room. Blood stains on west wall of master bedroom and matted sliding marks on hall carpet remain unexplained. As does superficial ligature mark around Mr. Leeds' chest, also believed to be postmortem. What the killer do with them after they were dead? I think Peterson is incredible in this movie. A lot of what he has to do is convey the idea of figuring things out in his head. That's yeah. several key scenes. That in this is movie. tough. I can understand someone taking it as off-putting. Even I don't think it's bad, but it is kind of weird to have him announce his emotions and reactions out loud. 
there are some script choices that I don't love, but for the most part, the script works and Peterson is is great. At, yeah, at convincing us that he's figuring this out, I buy it entirely. I think Farina is really great too. I just love seeing him pop up. Yeah, yeah, with his Chicago accent, <laughs> mustache. That's the right. whole thing. Just that iconic look. When he's in that first house and he's retracing the steps of the killer, oh man, when he goes into that bathroom, first it skeeves me out that he drinks out of the faucet, which I know there's no reason to think that that's weird, but I just don't think I could drink out of the faucet where there's been a horrible massacre. That then is true. the phone rings and you have to hear the answering machine of a dead woman. I know, that is unsettling. Oh yeah, that's definitely creepy because you're like, who's calling? Do they know? I know. Ugh. How could they not know? A lot of scenes of Graham alone working it out in his head. The discovery of unexplained talcum powder on one of the bodies leads Graham to realize the killer had probably removed the latex gloves he was wearing at least at one point, and so he doubles down in search of a fingerprint. Although, in all honesty, the fingerprint doesn't really factor in and it just becomes more of a red herring. Yeah, well, it's one of these moments where we're very early in the movie and you're like, oh, this guy's going to be an easy catch then. I'll point out that I used the director's cut yeah. for the notes, which is available on the Scream Factory Blu-ray, which I think is now out of print, but I don't really think it made a huge difference. You just have those moments where there's scenes that are in lesser quality. Right. <laughs> like just, when oh, we did Satan's Silent Blade. Night, Deadly oh, Night. yeah. Which, which one? I say? said Satan's Blade, which we didn't do for the show, but. <laughs> That's one of those unreleased episodes. Those are for the Patreon only. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've Blade. done the episode, we just didn't record it. Although, I do think the one where they're with the Atlanta PD, and we kind of see more of that meeting, and then the guy from The Thing is there. Yeah, right. I think that kind of information was pretty valuable. That's probably the one time in yeah. the director's cut where I was like, oh yeah, this definitely added something yeah I, and from an experience perspective it's definitely worth experiencing the whole scene at the end oh yeah you should definitely yeah. check it out i just don't know that a lot of the stuff that got added back in changes right. much i think the one lector scene is a little longer yeah in atlanta graham's instincts lead to the discovery of the killer's partial prints while meeting with crawford they are accosted by tabloid journalist freddie lowndes played by stephen lang with whom Graham shares some unpleasant history as well. In Red Dragon, Lowndes is portrayed by Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is definitely one of the things Red Dragon has over this oh, film. Oh, yeah, and he's great in it. Not that Lang is bad or anything, but no. it's Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, it's, so. it's, yeah. That is the weird thing about Red Dragon, is that it is big actors in a lot of roles where this is, it feels more like... Almost, Character actors in yeah, most of the right. parts, yeah. In addition to Hopkins, it has... Ed Norton, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Mary Louise Parker, Emily Watson, Ray Fiennes, Harvey Keitel. Yep. There might even be one or two other people. In order to recover the old mindset, Graham decides to fly to Baltimore to visit his old nemesis, Dr. Lecter, in his cell. Lecter is a former psychiatrist and potentially would be able to provide insight into his killer's motivations. After much gamesmanship... Lecter agrees to look at the case file. So this is it. Let's compare Brian Cox and Anthony Hopkins. I think we've already 
Scratch the surface. Scratch the surface of the comparison. Cox's performance was largely based on Scottish serial killer Peter Manuel and combining that with a mannered British schoolboy, which there's definitely a little bit of that in Hopkins as well. Mm-hmm. That strange European yeah. manner vibe. Right. And both Cox and Hopkins come from the UK and sort of bring that on their own, but I don't know that Lecter was necessarily written like that in the books. I can't really remember, to be honest. Okay. So I don't know if Hopkins is sort of taking something from Cox. I don't think so, because I just don't think that Hopkins would imitate another actor. It just doesn't seem like something he would do. And I don't think that he is, but there is a little bit of that overlap in that bizarre mannered... That might have been in the script, though. They might say like he's a polite, oddly polite (laughs) mannered man who speaks in a very direct way or something. I don't know. Yeah, that could be. I think the biggest thing is something we already touched on. I think the Hopkins performance works next to an actress that he's playing in a more flirtatious, seems like a weird word to use, but sexualized manner. Whereas the Cox performance works next to Peterson, a a guy that he's annoyed with, but also respects, but also would stab in the back as soon as he could. Well, maybe like the well-mannered thing just comes from this liking nicer things and like a proper... Well, yeah, I think a lot of that's in the book. Yeah. That's just how the character's written. So I'm thinking that when man does the script, he mm-hmm. may write in right. stuff from the novel. Or maybe, I can't remember if Cox said he read the book or not. Sometimes the actors read the books and sometimes they don't. Yeah. It just depends. During the filming of this movie... Anthony Hopkins was playing King Lear at the National Theater. During the filming of The Silence of the Lambs, Brian Cox was playing King Lear at the National Theater. Actors John Lithgow, Mandy Patakin, Brian Dennehy, Bruce Dern, and even director William Friedkin were all considered for Lecter. Oh, man. I would have loved the movie where Friedkin is Lecter. You're a fucking asshole. (laughs) Just yelling. So it was Dennehy who suggested to Mann that Brian Cox would be great. So he would go check him out in this play and see him. He would be great for this. Because I think they were actually going to give it to Dennehy. Wow. That's wild. Well, it's not like this movie was a big hit. Yeah, I I don't really think this did much. Lecter's prison in the film was actually the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, Georgia in... The Silence of the Lambs, it was a building called Soldiers and Sailors, which is on the campus of the University of Pittsburgh. That's it's right. also sort of a museum-type place. So, yeah, I don't know why they <laughs> picked these locations, but it adds this unique definitely feeling to the whole thing because then you have that scene of Graham running out of the building when he starts getting freaked out by Lecter. <laughs> which takes forever. Yeah, and you know that man was just loving the concept of having that far shot of him running from side to side. Absolutely, yeah ramps by the way this is the only hannibal movie where his last name is spelled l-e-c-k-t-o-r for some reason in all other adaptations of the novels including the novels themselves i believe it's spelled l-e-c-t-e-r yeah not really into the change i don't know why he changed the spelling of dollar high too yeah. i don't know why what lector leaves graham with is this quote The reason you caught me, Will, is we're just alike, playing into this idea that it's so easy for Graham to slip into the mind 
of a psychotic serial killer, which I think is the fear that someone who works in this type of field would have. You need to desensitize yourself to this, to enter this world, and then you start thinking like them, and then all of a sudden you're afraid at how you're relating to people. It's not necessarily that Will Graham is going to become a serial killer. It's just that he's losing his humanity. You become the shell of a person. It would right. affect his personal relationships with his wife, his son. You just wouldn't be able to be a normal person anymore because you can't relate or empathize. Or I think that's the fear. I don't know that that actually happens. I guess that's what the people in this line of work struggle with, and that's what the, the movie is essentially about. Yeah, I don't know how bad it could get. I guess a lot of people do have mental problems and PTSD and all of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, Lecter alludes to a, a colleague of Will's who just saw the basement and has yeah. th- that seemingly hasn't recovered. <laughs> or anybody who's seen this room where we're recording. <laughs> Later, when Lecter is given phone privileges in order to contact his attorney, he manipulates the numberless phone in order to connect with an operator. Using tidbits of information provided by Graham himself, Lecter manages to obtain Graham's home address by deceit over the phone. Get up against the bunk and face the wall. Don't turn around or I'll mace you in the face. Thank you so much. I'll call you when I'm finished. Are you ready for your call? Yes, thank you. Paul Tro, Christensen and Gallup Law Offices. Excuse me, I must have misdialed. Operator, uh, I don't have the use of my arms. Uh, would you be so kind as to uh, dial a number for me, please? Certainly. What's the number? Area code 301-555-6624. The University of Chicago Department of Psychiatry. Dr. Sidney Bloom, please. He's not in, but I'll connect you to his office. What's his secretary's name again? Hi, Martha. Martha doesn't come in nights. Maybe you can help me. This is Bob Greer of Blaine and Edwards Publishing Company. Dr. Bloom asked me to send a copy of The Psychiatrist and the Law to someone. Martha never sent me the address and phone number. She'll be in in the morning. Well, I've got to catch Federal Express in about five minutes. I'd be immensely appreciative if you could pull it out of a Rolodex for me. I, I don't see a Rolodex. I'll bet you has a call caddy right next to her phone. Well, zip that little pointer right on down to the letter G. All right. The name we're looking for, last name Graham, the man the book is supposed to be sent to, a Mr. Will Graham. Federal Bureau of Investigation, 10th and Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C. Now, I'll bet it has his home address there, too. 3680 DeSoto Highway, Captiva, Florida. Thank you so very much. I'm finished. 
When the production could not get permission to film on board a commercial airplane, Michael Mann booked his actors, actresses, and crew onto a twilight flight from Chicago to Florida, where the production was relocating anyway. A stripped-down camera, lighting, and sound equipment were taken on board as carry-on luggage. Pilots and flight attendants were appeased with gifts of movie crew jackets. Oh, First of all, I'd love to get a look at that Manhunter crew jacket. Definitely. I need to see what that looks like. I- I'd like to own one. I know. Yeah, like... There's probably none in existence. They've probably all yeah. been destroyed. But yeah, that's the scene where he leaves the crime scene photos out, and that little girl's like, what the fuck? <laughs> that would be great if that little girl wasn't an actress. Obviously, it's a, a horrible thing for the little girl, but it is like a funny scene to include in a movie because it does seem like something that could happen in life that you would never think of. Well, it also illustrates him going down that path. Yeah, He's not... Like realizing how bizarre and inappropriate that is to just be looking at those pictures. Bloody photos. He falls asleep to it looking at it. And the little girl looks over and freaks out. He has some of those dreams and in the dream is him and Molly on that pier. Yeah. And that reminded me of some of Demi's choices because he used a lot of those close ups on faces. That's true, yeah. But I think Demi's done that in some of his other films. And Demi was using it a lot for like the point of view shots. Yeah, in that person's perspective. Right, yeah, yeah, which happened to be looking right at another person yeah, when yeah. it was like Clarice and her roommate and stuff. Because people talk like so face-to-face like that. <laughs> well, <laughs> Reba and that guy driving her home I at know. one point. <laughs> yeah. He's like digging for pollen in her nose. <laughs> Graham is headed to the first crime scene in Birmingham, Alabama. He's making connections between the two families, big yards, trees, He's realizing that the killer must have been waiting, staking them out. He finds a place up in the trees. He finds that weird symbol carved into the tree. Uh That's one of the only real references to the red dragon thing. He kind of alludes to it in that thing that he makes Lowndes read later, but I'm just comparing it to red dragon. There's just not a lot of emphasis on the red dragon No, not really. But he has to scale this tree by climbing up this insane tire swing rope. So two guys did this? Well, nothing would shock me about Dollar Hyde. Yeah, it I seems know. like he's it's just a, a, a specimen. Freak. Yeah. <laughs> he actually just reached up and grabbed the branch and pulled himself up with one arm. <laughs> the listeners at home really enjoying me acting that out with my arms, yeah. which was he's entertaining reaching up for like you. 20 yards into the air. <laughs> While in Birmingham, Graham is on the line with Crawford when Frederick Chilton. Oh who we remember from Silence of the Lambs, although it's a different actor, Lecter's warden, he comes on because a note has been discovered amongst Lecter's personal effects in his cell. It's communication from the Tooth Fairy himself expressing admiration for Lecter and an interest in Graham. It says, My dear Dr. Lecter, I wanted to tell you that I am delighted that you've taken an interest in me. I know that you alone can understand what I am becoming. You alone know the people I use to help me in these things are only elements undergoing change to fuel the radiance of what I am becoming. Just as the source of light is burning, I have a collection of your press clippings. I think they are absurd, as are mine. The Tooth Fairy. What could be more inappropriate? Investigator Graham interests me. Very purposeful looking. (laughs) I hope we can correspond. There's a missing piece. And then, after I hear back from you, I might send you something wet. Avid fan. And then there's 
teeth marks on the note as ah, well. Yes. So how did the Tooth Fairy know of Investigator Graham? It's that son of a bitch, Freddie Lowndes. That's right. Snapping photos of Graham as he's running out of Lecter's jail, <laughs> having a meltdown. He looks very purposeful. What kind of tabloid really fixates on crime stories? I guess... It does seem far-fetched. There probably are things that existed back in the day, and I'm sure some tabloids would pick on very high-profile, salacious crimes to cover sometimes. But to have a guy covering it like a daily beat in Baltimore... Well, there was a lot more niche topics in the written press. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Back before the internet. I would think that this would probably equate to some kind of an internet... Yeah thing now although the concept would probably be more that freddie lounge works for a national publication that's not really located in baltimore that's the thing i get hung up on it's like a local paper that's a tabloid that covers (laughs) murders or and graham is back in town so now he's a story again yeah what kind of audience is there that's scooping up the tattler going like oh shit whoa whoa, graham Graham! back on the beat what the fuck (laughs) it actually makes more sense in the 2020s because people are obsessed with true crime yeah. now. Maybe if this was post-serial and this was... What was that chick's name that hosted Serial? Sarah Koenig. Sarah Koenig's coming out of the Baltimore jail. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, she's she talking to Ed not again. Or so, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. maybe in modern true crime obsession days, but I don't know, in the 80s... Somebody just listened to the multi-part series of Hannibal Lecter's arrest and trial. <laughs> yeah. Getting some excitement around Will Graham being back in the mix. Obviously, this is a problem for Graham because he's already on a rocky road with Molly. And so his wife is now going to see this getting coverage. She knows that the killer is out there somewhere also seeing his name. Now he's being connected to this. This is something that seems to happen much more frequently in movies. But then again, maybe it does happen in real life and we just don't know about it. But It seems to me that most serial killers would probably not be interested in the person pursuing them and would rather just sort of go into a a recession period where they try to quiet down for a while to take the heat off of them. I don't think they would go after and murder the investigator because then it would become the biggest story in the world and everybody will be looking for you. You're not going to be able to sneak around anymore. But in movies, it does seem like, oh, shit, now they're going to know that it's you. Yeah, right. (laughs) They're going to come after you. And then, of course... Now he's being mentioned by name in a note from the Tooth Fairy to his old nemesis, Hannibal Lecter. What we have is really just a highly stylized, R-rated, very intense, well-constructed procedural. And it's ironic that William Peterson would then go on to be in one of the most popular procedural shows of all time. Really like what he's known for now. Yeah, he's working the case in this, going through the steps, going beat by beat. And so you're not reinventing the wheel. This isn't avant-garde, revolutionary cinema. This is a very straightforward crime thriller, but it's just presented in a highly artistic way. In most procedurals, not this amount of thought going into how they're going to stage all of these shots. (laughs) Yeah. Crawford brings Graham to Washington, where a missing section of the note is analyzed to determine what Lecter removed. They discover an instruction to communicate through the personal sections of the National Tatler, Lowndes' newspaper. The FBI's plan is to plant a fake personal ad to replace Lecter's 
It says, Dear avid fan, inherit my mantle and surpass my achievements. Mementos for you at Baltimore Central Left Luggage, ticket number 72683. This plan always felt half-baked to me. This did not seem like it was going to work. Loved seeing Chris Elliott at the (laughs) table during these scenes. That was unexpected, really. (laughs) Literally rolling shit. (laughs) It's just in the scene. The real note from Lecter reads, Dear avid fan, you honor me. You're very beautiful. I offer 100 prayers for your safety. Find help in Galatians 6.11.15.2, Acts 3.3, Revelations 18.7, Jonah 6.8, John 6.22, Luke 1.7. The problem is, as we're being reminded when it's thrown out, okay, well, let's hold Lecter's note, not run it, and wait and see if we can decipher what this means. Graham says, well, we only have 17 days. We can't afford to, to wait seven. So you're reminded of the lunar cycle, right. the ticking clock, but they're also concerned with when the Tattler's going to press in this moment. They don't have a ton of time, but they quickly realize that some of these have to be non-existent Bible verses because... Oh, yeah. They don't have as many books as what is being said. So obviously there's a code. The FBI understands that Lecter isn't using the Bible, but instead there's an unknown book probably. But without the proper book code, the Tooth Fairy will know the planted ad is fake. So they ultimately run with Lecter's. They let the advertisement run as it is, and Graham organizes an interview with Lowndes giving a false and derogatory profile of the Tooth Fairy to incite him. This does really nothing except get Lowndes killed. (laughs) Thankfully. After a sting operation fails to catch the killer, Lowndes is kidnapped by the Tooth Fairy. He is then forced to tape record a statement before being set on fire in a wheelchair, his flaming body rolled into the parking garage of the National Tattler as a warning. This is definitely a memorable visual. Francis Dollarhide, a.k.a. the Tooth Fairy, played by Tom Noonan, he doesn't appear until the 55-minute mark of the film, and then his face isn't actually seen until the 56th minute. So we're basically halfway through. Right. Overall, it does feel like he's a bigger influence on the movie than Buffalo Bill. Yeah, yeah. Because Lecter is such a bigger presence in lambs that buffalo bill is almost like oh, the yeah. side act and whereas i think when you get the, into the third act of this movie it almost seems like it's about dollar hide yeah he's much yeah. more of the main act than lector lector is right. almost just an afterthought in this yeah, movie. yeah and dollar hide gets his own side storyline in a way that like a buffalo bill never really does yeah we know much more about the tooth fairy than we do buffalo bill and the second half of the film it feels like he's the co-lead with Peterson, whereas the first half of the film, Peterson's the solo star. Right. Noonan credits his ability to improvise during rehearsals for his casting. He took up bodybuilding to prepare physically for the part. That's how he's able to climb up that rope swing. Preparation for his role by studying other serial killers, but quickly rejected this approach. While shooting the film, Noonan remained in character at all times, keeping away from cast members playing his pursuers he also spent many hours in makeup so that artists could paint fake tattoos on his back and torso modeled after william blake's great red dragon paintings though noonan appeared with the tattoos in publicity photos available in a special edition dvd 
Writer and director Michael Mann concluded that the tattoos were too over the top and discarded the idea. However, in Red Dragon from 2002, you do see the tattoos oh, yeah. on screen. And they had to actually reshoot the scenes of him with his shirt off oh, okay. because he didn't like how the tattoos looked. Even the cinematographer of the film, Dante Spinati, he was saying that every choice man makes is deliberate and everything. there's a reason for how everything looks and the colors and beyond even just like, oh, this looks cool. And the movie even is able to maintain that even though they had to hurry up and reshoot the stuff because of the tattoo mishaps. And they didn't really have as much time to think about all that stuff, but it still kind of works and comes together. If you notice in Francis's house, he always has that TV that's like scrambled with the picture moving. That's because schizophrenics always are trying to look for messages in between the lines of things. And that's a common behavior. His appearance is sort of strange. Some people find it scary some people actually do consider this a horror film and find that presentation with the pantyhose half mask to be scary. I don't really. I think his cleft palate, the makeup job, is not great in this movie. I always find Tom Noonan to be a little bit creepy, though. Oh, yeah. His performance yeah. is great. I actually prefer his version to Ray Fiennes. Yeah, yeah. I think Ray Fiennes is a great actor, but he definitely feels like he's pretending to be creepy. Whereas Tom yeah. Noonan just is creepy, maybe. Or maybe he's just a great actor. But Watch he, uh, House of the Devil and tell me. Yeah, and he's been the weird guy in... The X-Files. I don't know. He's just kind of always been around. He has a long like, history of being the creepy dude. And a long body. Yeah. <laughs> it's the tall situation with his calm but creepy voice. Yeah. His delivery. There's the deadness to the eyes and then yeah. that wild hair. <laughs> Which is what I would feel like your hair would look like if you try to grow it out. Where we're heading. (laughs) Heading? Yeah, we'll be there soon. By the end of this episode. (laughs) So he's got Lowndes tied to a chair. He's making him read this statement that he's recording, showing him like this bizarre slideshow presentation. He's talking about transformation. Very similar to shit that Buffalo Bill was saying. Right, right. It's not really anything to do with a sex change or gender or anything in this film it's more of he is almost becoming a god a higher power yeah it's something along those lines but he bites lounge but before he does he takes out those fake teeth and puts those on so we know that the teeth are also not really gonna be how you catch them it's not gonna be a fingerprint it's not gonna be hair it's not gonna be teeth now, the fingerprint thing is basically just because he's not in their index like he had never been fingerprinted before, right? Yeah, it almost feels like they just want to make sure you know that you can't rely on stuff like that. Yeah. A similar joke in Superbad about the semen database. Right. <laughs> Somehow this guy never fingerprinted. Well, a lot of serial killers weren't arrested earlier in yeah, their life. Yeah, true. Sometimes it's something that just sort of develops later, but also... It's not as if in 1986 the FBI was able to have fingerprints to every local PD. It would just be people that they had in their database. It wasn't quite as advanced as it is now. I'm assuming now there's probably like a a huge national fingerprint database for like anyone that ever gets fingerprinted anywhere, which is kind of scary. But maybe not. I don't know. Uh, It seems like that would exist, though. It's probably a good thing overall, but don't try to do anything. (laughs) Don't try it. Crawford brings Molly in for a one-night visit with Graham. 
so that we can get the requisite 80s sex scene, soft lighting, big score, slow motion, sheets wrapped around standing naked bodies. It's all there. You know <laughs> what right. to expect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A recurring repeated phrase throughout some of man's work, the phrase time is luck, used by Molly when talking to her husband here. This phrase also appeared in Heat, where it was used by Macaulay, De Niro's character, when talking to Amy Brenneman's character about Ooh. their relationship and having time for them. It was also used in Miami Vice, the film from 2006, when Isabella, the character played by Gong Lee, was talking to Sonny, played by Colin Farrell, about their relationship. So about there you that. go. All right, time is luck. As we've alluded to, another incredible 80s score. We were truly spoiled back then, and we didn't even realize it because oftentimes these scores were not appreciated and mocked even. This one is done by the Reds and Michael Rubini, but it sounds very similar to Vangelis's score for Blade Runner. For sure. No, I feel like when I was growing up, I, I didn't like this 80s sound. Now I can't imagine movies without it now. Some of the best memories i have of watching movies over the past like 15 years now are with these scores but when i was growing up and saw stuff like this i would have been like oh this is cringe and awful well yeah i think that just goes back to anything that seems like it's old yeah. from another time sort of like how a lot of kids don't want to yeah. see something black and white if the people whatever. who did these scores could have known the music i was listening to at that time <laughs> i just think there's something cool though about that kind of sound up against something where it doesn't necessarily make sense. Oh, yeah. Because in Thief with Tangerine Dream score or this score in Manhunter, there's nothing futuristic going on, and yet they both sound futuristic, those scores. Whereas in Blade Runner, I love that score. It's one of my all-time favorites, but it makes sense. It Uh fits perfectly. There's nothing weird about that appearing in that movie. The FBI decodes Lecter's coded message to the Tooth Fairy. It is Graham's home address with an instruction to kill Graham and his family. Graham rushes to find his family safe, but terrified. After the FBI moves Graham's family to a safe house, he explains to his son Kevin why he had to retire previously. You and Mom are very well protected, you know. No one's going to find out where you are. Is there anything I need to know to see about Mom? No. This guy's going to kill us? We don't know that. When are you going to kill him? I'm not. It's only my job to find him. Barry's mom had this newspaper. It said you were in a special hospital. Well, it was a regular hospital. And I was transferred into the psychiatric wing. That bothers you, doesn't it? I don't know. Was it because in the papers it said it was this man, Lecter? Mm-hmm. What happened? Well, Lecter was attacking college girls, and he killed them. How? In bad ways. He was a psychiatrist. One of the girls was his patient, and I went to talk to him about her. I tried to build feelings in my imagination like the killer had. 
so that I would know why he did what he did, because that would help me find him. When I was sitting in Lecter's office, and I looked up, I saw a book on his shelf. It had pictures of war wounds in it. And I knew it was him. So I went to a payphone down the hall to call the police. And that's when he attacked me. You and Mom came to see me in the hospital, and that helped a lot. But after my body got okay, I still had his thoughts going around in my head. And I stopped talking to people. And a doctor friend of mine, a Dr. Bloom, asked me to get some help. And I did. And after a while, I felt better. And I was okay again. And the way he thought felt that bad. Kevin, they're the ugliest thoughts in the world. So what kind of coffee do you like? You like that Folger stuff, right? Yeah. Mom likes that too. When can we go home, Dad? I don't know, Kevin. This is another fantastic Peterson scene, the one in the supermarket. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. He's really good in this movie. I think he's good in To Live and Die in L.A. Fear is a dumb, pulpy <laughs> movie that we masterpiece. love. masterpiece, oh yeah. <laughs> it's not really a movie I would necessarily say you're putting on your career resume as far as an actor. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Amy Brenneman, but I've liked him in a lot of stuff. This is probably his best role, I think. Yeah. The stuff with the son gives you the personal connection because there isn't a ton of it in the movie. And it allows that vulnerability about talking about the psychological impact. It it lets you into his character and allows him to be a real human being and not Rambo, not right. a super cop of the 80s. This is a real man who is experiencing the ramifications of what his job makes him do. For the whole thing of Lecter deducing how he can get Will's address and yeah. then he has it and you think at first that sort of feels like a big scary thing. I mean, I definitely play with that a lot more in Red Dragon because in Red Dragon there actually is a scene at Will's house. Yeah, it doesn't even seem like we ever in this it know just goes away. the Tooth Fairy even knowing right. about that message because they explain it though, and we'll get to that yeah, in a minute. Yeah. They do explain what's going on. <laughs> Our boy is shook. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. I love seeing these vintage cereals, though. You know that we talked oh, about yeah. it in Raising Arizona. I saw a cereal called S'mores Crunch. Oh, boy. That would have been right up my alley. Whatever happened to that? I don't know. Actually, I think they do try to bring it back every now and again. It never really is I didn't know that existed, but S'more anything was like my favorite flavor. I love those S'more Pop-Tarts. Yeah. I'll still fuck with those S'mores oh, Pop-Tarts yeah. from time to time. In a way, it feels like maybe history repeating. Graham is experiencing the mental toll of entering Lecter's mind all over again because he's having to 
really force himself to get into the delusions, into the fantasies of this mystery man that they're pursuing. Somebody so evil that he's slaughtering entire families in these very brutal, bloody ways. And now a family man, a regular man, has to follow. Follow that path into hell, basically. Six more days until the next full moon. Loving all this shit when he goes back to Florida. The mist... Oh, that transition from the mist into the rain yeah. when he's waiting in the airport. The weather is all working with the lights and the color. Everything looks so fucking Absolutely. cool. Absolutely. I'm embarrassed that I would have ever thought that Red Dragon was even Dude, comparable I know. to this. But yeah, that's just a maturation of taste, probably. Totally. You're not really understanding what makes this good. Although, I guarantee I saw Red Dragon before this. I didn't see this movie till probably way after Red Dragon. I don't know for me. Because I saw Red Dragon in the theater. <laughs> okay, I, I did not. I, I saw remember, Hannibal in the theater. I do remember when Red Dragon came out, but I did not see it in the theater. As Graham prepares for what he believes will be the final showdown with a serial murderer, Francis Dollarhide, who we already recognize as the Tooth Fairy, approaches a blind co-worker, Reba McLean, played by Joan Allen, and offers her a ride home I was saying this to you. There are certain actors and actresses that they have these careers, uh-huh. and you know they exist, and you know they're in plenty of things, and yet you feel like you don't know who they are. And Joan Allen is one of them for me. Right. Because other than this, I don't think I've ever really seen the other things that she's in, but she's been in plenty of big movies, and probably TV too. I don't know, but... She's worked for 40 years, and yet this feels like the only thing I know her from because I just missed out on that. It's just weird how that happens with certain people sometimes. Well, I found myself looking up Kim Greist, too, and I don't think she was as big an actress as Joan Allen, but she was in stuff, and I had not seen any of it. Isn't she the mom in Homeward Bound? Maybe. I'm going to need you to check that while I continue on with the notes. I love watching Francis's eyes light up. When he goes to see Reba, and then he realizes Reba is blind. That is such a subtle character yeah. choice that tells you so much about this man, Francis. Kim Grace in Homeward Bound 1 and 2. Okay, confirmed. Stopped acting, at least in movies, in 2001. <laughs> but you get what I mean, though. This is a man who has zero self-confidence, who hates himself, oh, who yeah. struggles with his appearance. I, He's... I, yeah tall and bald but why also are you has, saying you know you, i know what you mean <laughs> all these things you're well, i'm describing. saying that the ca- well you weren't listening when i was dropping great knowledge because you were oh, okay. looking that up but yeah. i'm saying that the Something moment when his eyes light up when he realizes yeah. reba is blind is a great character moment because without giving you all of the sob story backstory that right. exists in the novel and in red dragon that tells you a lot about him as a person yep when he realizes this woman, this pretty woman, is blind, that is great news to him. He's excited. He's like, holy shit. And you can see it on his face, that realization. Like, oh. For sure. Well, I think Tom Noonan does some subtle body motion type acting to add to the character traits. Because when he's like seeing people, he a lot of times he's kind of like putting his hand in front of his mouth and everything oh, to yeah. cover his... Cleft palate. Yeah. Right. They definitely wanted to create a man as opposed to a monster, which is inherent to the source material, even though they lop a lot of that backstory out. At heart, Francis is someone craving societal acceptance, and that 
will then be figured out eventually by Graham as he pieces together the motivation for the killings. We're dealing with a psyche warped beyond belief, something far more established in the book with uh, a domineering, let's say, mother, abusive, beyond belief. A totally different vibe and approach to how Demi handles Buffalo Bill. I believe this original novel, The Silence of the Lambs, gives you a little bit more of Buffalo Bill's backstory. I have to say, when I read the book after seeing the movie plenty of times, I didn't really like any of that stuff. Something's better left to mystery. Yeah, I know that people are human beings in real life, but in a movie, I think it's okay to allow Buffalo Bill to remain a monster. And I think what man chooses to do here with if Dollarhide, a.k.a. the Tooth Fairy, it ends up working where they do include the humanity, but through Reba, we're allowed to empathize with the man in a much more pleasant way than yeah. giving us this grim, unwatchable backstory that will, no one will like watching. Well, if we learned anything from John Carpenter's Halloween and Rob Zombie's Halloween 1, not Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, which is, of course, a work of art and an undisputed <laughs> masterpiece. But yeah, sometimes this monster who's just like a nothing with no human background or no known reason that they would become this thing is much better than oh, knowing all these horrible created things. created by yeah. society. Right. Yeah, and I think they still are able to accomplish both by doing it this way. Because yeah, like yeah. I said, I think the Reba things is a perfect substitute, even though that's part of the book and Red Dragon as well, but... That's all you need. That's enough. Right. Because we see, in a weird way, what could have been if things hadn't gone wrong with this man. Yep. You know, Noonan is definitely an actor embracing his size, appearance, and physicality with this part, and that all works. Oh, yeah. As I said, he's much more believable than Ray Fiennes, who never quite feels like he could be this guy. Uh-huh. It's weird with Fiennes. I-, I could actually almost more so see him being Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, a younger Lecter, but yeah, I would agree with that. I was really wound up. I was doing 50 push-ups between each take, and we were doing take after take, Noonan has said on filming his role as the Tooth Fairy. During principal photography, Noonan asked that no one playing his victims and pursuers be allowed to see him while those he did speak to should address him by his character's name, Francis. That's always fun for everyone to deal with. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's always so happy to have to do that. Really? The first time Noonan met Peterson was when Peterson jumped through a large window during the filming of the climactic fight scene. Noonan admits that because of his request, the atmosphere on set became so tense that people actually became afraid of him. He I don't be- know if that was the reason, Noonan. He had begun bodybuilding to prepare for the role and felt that his size intimidated the crew when filming began, as the first scene to be shot was his character's interrogation and murder of another. Noonan claims that this led him to take separate flights and stay in separate hotels from the rest of the cast. While on the film set, he would remain in his trailer alone in the dark to prepare himself, sometimes joined by a silent man. Oh boy. I love the idea of Michael Mann sitting in the dark with him (laughs) while he's getting in the character. (laughs) Wow. When you just said that, I thought it was like a character out of a David Lynch movie or something. A silent man. Like there was just some random dude that wouldn't speak that would go and sit in his trailer. No, Michael, man. Yeah, I got it now. (laughs) We learned pretty quickly that Reba is extremely trusting. I'm not placing any judgment on the blind or taking any authority on telling blind people how to behave, but 
I would say this feels very naive on her part. I don't know maybe if a couple of days are supposed to have gone by, but it seems like she's wearing the same clothes the whole time. So mm. this is wild that this is all happening so quickly. Yeah. There's a surprise element to it. I feel like even from Dollar Hyde's character's perspective. Well, definitely from his. Yeah. I don't think that he could have ever imagined any of this happening. But the movie wants us to believe that she couldn't either. But Joan Allen is a pretty woman. And yeah. just the fact that she's blind, they're acting like, why would anyone ever want to date her or something? Like, she should just be happy that someone's talking to her and not care that this dude's a total weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Francis is sweet to her, even if he is acting bizarre and making strange faces. She can't see those faces anyway. Instead of taking her straight home from work, he takes her, Reba to see a sedated tiger that she can pet and feel breathe. It actually moves her to tears. They used a real sedated tiger and a real vet in the film. It does look really cool. Yeah, it seems crazy, though, because I know that it's sedated, but sometimes I know. it feels like they could just wake up or yeah, something. Yeah, seriously. Just starts tearing Joan Allen apart. <laughs> yeah. And that tiger looked really hungry. I, I say so, yeah. It looked a little malnourished, uh-huh. actually. It's hip bones. I don't know. I don't know what was going on there. The blossoming new romance makes its way to Francis's home, where Reba is oblivious to the fact that Francis is watching home movie footage of his planned next victims. Getting himself like worked up a little bit. Yeah, he's turning himself on, watching the family, especially, of course, the mother, which is the real target. It is confusing to me that he makes it so much harder on himself by choosing women that have families, but the movie never really explains why it has to he can't be like, just fix the, pick the woman. So the mother thing, right? I guess. Yeah, okay. That's what I was thinking, that it ties back to his problems with his mother. Yeah, but that's not in this movie. Though. No, I, yeah. They don't ever mention his mother or any of that shit, so... Yeah, they never really provide an explanation in this movie why he fixates on the families rather than just single right. women. Because they do emphasize that he's picking women he finds attractive. For sure. And then when he's watching the home movies, he's staring at the woman in the bikini. Then he's looking at Joan Allen on his couch, getting himself all turned on. He's the ultimate voyeur. But it's Reba who actually makes the first move. And then they have this unexpected love scene. Even the Tooth Fairy himself is asking, like, what the fuck are you doing, lady? Are you nuts? You don't even know me. <laughs> Haven't yeah. you heard of AIDS? <laughs> I don't know, but he was definitely like, this is not where I was thinking this whole thing was going to go. Yeah, he's Which, sobbing afterward. It, it is a really cool angle to introduce to a movie. We already know that this guy is the devil himself and has brutalized two families, and now you're doing this kind of sweet love story with a blind woman right. who's so trusting. Yeah. <laughs> he's being weird but sweet like he takes her to see the tiger there's no other reason in like, this movie other than he's just doing something nice and they do lure you into this feeling very briefly but they lure you into this feeling of like oh this could steer him away from yeah and you're like could there be a happily ever yeah. after and you're like well no he killed <laughs> two families <laughs> the following night graham calls lector and speaks to him over the phone seemingly not that Broken up about him almost getting his family killed. He's yeah. like, yeah, I'll still talk to you on the phone. <laughs> it dawns on Graham that the Tooth Fairy kills out of intense desire for acceptance. Oh, 
Yeah, this is Will Graham of the FBI. Dr. Chilton arranged for me to talk to Dr. Lecter. Hello? Hello, Will. I wanted to congratulate you for the job you did on Mr. Lawrence. I admired it enormously. Oh, what a cunning boy you are, Will. I'm sick of you crazy sons of bitches, Lecter. You got something to say, say it. I want to help you. You'd be more comfortable if you relax with yourself. We don't invent our natures. They're issued to us along with our lungs and pancreas and everything else. Why fight it? Fight what? Did you really feel so depressed after you shot Mr. Garrett Jacob Hobbs to death? I didn't know you then, but I think you probably did. But it wasn't the act that got you down, was it? Didn't you really feel so bad because killing him felt so good? And why shouldn't it feel good? It must feel good to God. He does it all the time. God's terrific. He dropped a church roof on 34 of his worshippers last Wednesday night in Texas as they were groveling through a hymn to his majesty. Don't you think that felt good? Why does it feel good, Dr. Lecter? It feels good, Will, because God has power. And if one does what God does enough times, one will become as God is. God's a champ. He always stays ahead. He got 140 Filipinos in one plane crash last month. Remember that earthquake in Italy last spring? This is another really cool scene, and I emphasized it when we were watching some of the movie together right before this. I love the thing with the elevator. Yeah, it looked cool. Man says that there was an impulse during production to increase... Lecter's screen time but he resisted the urge I wanted the audience to almost not quite get enough of him man said the first meeting between Graham and Lecter is extended for the director's cut which I showed you that part and I actually like that that was another scene I probably would have kept too it's almost as if two conversations are happening at once because he's asking him how did you catch me Will how did you catch me and then they're still circling back to the tooth fairy thing and then he keeps bringing that back up too the elevator light in the background of this phone scene here that comes on at the moment Hannibal tells Graham, if one does what God does enough times, one will become as God is. This was something director Michael Mann arranged with his crew to symbolize Graham's revelation. I love it because it's so subtle. Yeah. You wouldn't even really necessarily think of it because the building in the background is another skyscraper type in a city. It's not in focus. Right. And the elevator just comes on. It's like a bright light, not very big, but it's far off. And it comes on on one floor and it goes up a few floors. And it does happen right at that moment. Uh But what I love about it is it's real. They had to coordinate it probably with walkie-talkies or something to hit the moment when William Peterson says the right line. Because obviously they can add the recording of talks over the phone. but. I just love that because it's not CGI. Know, it's, it's just a practical, like, we have to plan this out at the building. And, yeah, it's kind of corny, like a light yeah, bulb the, going off like an cool, idea. Though. But, yeah, I love it. And I love those 80s cities and lights and skyscrapers. Yeah. And, I don't know, it just looks really cool, like most Michael Mann shots. Totally. Now, from Lecter's perspective, why is he giving clues and helping Will here? 
I think he's just amusing himself. Yeah. It is sort of what I was saying earlier, a game. They're all right. just playing in this game. And at one point, he's helping the Tooth Fairy by giving him yeah. Graham's home address. But that's really just to amuse himself. I yeah. don't think he gives a shit about the Tooth Fairy one way or the other. Would he like to push Will over the edge? Yeah. Yeah. He's having fun, and it's the only way he could ever really get back at Will, assuming he never escapes. Right. So let's talk a little bit about Dollarhide, a.k.a. the Tooth Fairy, just so everyone can get on the same page. He is a serial killer. He kills the entire families using gunshots, throat cutting, strangulations, a combination of nasty things. The name Tooth Fairy is a nickname that comes from the uncommon bite, the size, and the sharpness, which he uses and leaves on his victims. But we know from the scene with Freddie Lowndes that the teeth are not actually... Dollar Hyde's own teeth, right? Although they're not explained whose they are in this movie, I believe they are his mother's. Is that correct? Uh, that seems right. Something like that. Yeah, I, I I can't remember from the book. Dollar Hyde has an alternate personality, which comes from the Great Red Dragon, which is named after William Blake's painting, The Great Red Dragon and the Woman Clothed in Sun. That dragon figure in those paintings is who he, I guess, believes he's turning into. He sees the killings as change, uh-huh. and that's what he is doing to his victims, is changing them, and they are then assisting in his change or something. The logic sort of runs out at a certain yeah, point. Yeah. <laughs> One last crime scene walkthrough in Atlanta for Graham. This is another unnerving scene where he actually is so into it that he's now seeing the victims in bed, and they have lights beaming out of their eyes and uh-huh. mouths that looks like something out of a horror movie more or less yeah or like out of unsolved mysteries <laughs> that's what it reminded me of i know what you mean but i also don't know what that could be on <laughs> unsolved know, mysteries yeah. i guess maybe the effect is about the same quality yeah. well because within the same episode of unsolved mysteries y- you would have like a murder story but also like ghost. a ghost story or yeah. aliens yeah or right yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, Francis watches as Reba is escorted home by another male co-worker and from his vantage point across the street misinterprets what he sees. He quickly murders the man and then abducts Reba. So yeah, I actually think that this is something weird that both Silence of the Lambs and Manhunter have in common, which is the weird pop songs on the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. And Man has chosen really obscure songs, at least in lambs you have american girl and some recognizable stuff this is like a lot of weird songs so this song starts playing and i don't know why francis is waiting outside reba's house i'm not sure what they're doing here but this other co-worker who we were already briefly introduced to is driving her home and then for some reason they're like face to face right in her doorway you understand dollar hides he misinterprets the situation but you understand why he would maybe he is right in her face. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. When you say understand why he would, it makes it sound like you're saying you understand his reaction. <laughs> no, I don't understand his reaction. I understand why he thinks something is happening here. Yeah, but I also think that you're seeing things from his perspective, and so okay. we're not sure yeah. what it actually True. is supposed to be. But whatever. He's just brushing pollen off of a blind woman's face, but in Francis's mind, it seems like they're lingering and maybe kissing or something's happening, right. and he totally freaks out. But yeah, the music is playing. I, I don't know. It, it, it's just a, a weird vibe that I really like because it keeps you off balance. I guess what I'm saying is 
a lot of times in movies, the music is cueing you, whether it's the score or pop songs on the soundtrack or whatever. It's kind of giving you a hint as to what to expect with a certain scene. And in this movie, especially this scene, the song that you're hearing is nothing of what you're expecting to play out. It's really weird. Now, I do think in Red Dragon, the whole thing with their relationship feels longer. There's more of a chance that something can happen here. Everything kind of ends pretty quickly in Manhunter. I may be misremembering that, but that is what I thought. What was it? Holland. Thanks for the ride. See you tomorrow. Yeah. Mr. Dalhide, what are you doing here? Searching for a connection between the murdered families, Graham realizes that the killer must have seen their home movies. He brought bolt cutters to a home with a padlock in a home video. So what that means is he knows because of a branch being cut in the tree that he climbed up that the Tooth Fairy brought a bolt cutter. Why did he bring a bolt cutter? He was expecting a bolt, but it wasn't a bolt. The lock had been changed to a padlock. Why did he think it was a bolt? Well, the lock had been changed in between the time from a video being taken, and then he's piecing it together with the pets and a couple of other things, and he realizes that the only way the Tooth Fairy would have known certain information about these families, because it wouldn't have been from things visible on the street, would have been to see these videos, the same things he's looking at. So that's how they piece this together. We were trying to figure this out because the technology is so (laughs) outdated. I was suggesting that this predates most people having VHS camcorders. So home movies were probably shot on film. Right. Probably Super 8, as you were saying. Uh huh. So you would have to send your film out to certain labs, and they would process it to put it onto VHS so you could watch it at home. Yeah. And I think those are the labs that both Francis and Reba work at. Now, yeah. how a blind woman works in video, I'm not really sure. I'm not trying to be no, funny I or know. insulting. I don't know what her job is. I, I don't know. But if you're talking about home movies and stuff, it just seems weird that she works there. I know. Anyway, it's very reminiscent of how the victims are selected in the Robin Williams film One Hour Photo, which I also saw in the theater and I also saw, thought was good. Yeah, I know. You brought that up and I had never made that connection before, but that is there. Yeah, and I do wonder if they just took that right out of this and we're like, let's just make the whole movie about that whole thing about yeah. a guy who works in a photo place. And that's how they do the victims. And this is another strong Peterson scene though, because they turn it into a very exciting scene of a guy just sitting there figuring it out, which they sort of do in silence of the lambs, except at least in those scenes, 
Jodie Foster sometimes has Cassie Lemons or someone to bounce off of. Right, And it's not just her by herself. But yeah, whenever they're like, he covets and that whole thing, it it's sort of reminiscent of Peterson in this moment being like, you saw the videos, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you son of a bitch. I will do that. When he's doing that, it, it reminds me of freaking Poltergeist. Yeah. But <laughs> you didn't move the bodies, did you? <laughs> he was channeling Craig T. Nelson yeah. in this one. There are a couple times, like I said, where he talks to himself because even the tagline on the fucking poster was something like, it's just you and me now, sport. When he says that, like when he's <laughs> yeah. in the airport at one point, it's like, oh, God. <laughs> Similar to the way that Goodbye Horses is utilized as such a pivotal song, even though it's not actually a part of the plot at all in Silence of the Lambs, <laughs> yeah. In the God of Vida becomes the song in this movie. I Like I said, man got it from that real life killer. Uh-huh. I think I came up with the perfect description of this song oh. as we were setting up when I said somehow they figured out a way for a song to be awesome and terrible or something like <laughs> yeah. that. I was like, this song is one of the worst songs ever, but also great. Right. Because <laughs> there are parts of In the God of the Vita where you're like, yeah, this is fucking great. <laughs> and then there's other parts where he's singing where you're just like, oh, shut, shut the it fuck off. up. Yeah. <laughs> when you think about the stereotypes of the worst of hippie culture uh-huh. <laughs> condensed into one 12 minute song or however long it is it's always a problem when it's that long yeah but that breakdown where it kind of goes into that organ or keyboard or whatever, and then it come rocks back in with him jumping through the window that right, is right. Yeah, awesome it's it like, is dun, 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 dun. yeah yeah you can get revved up but then yeah when he starts singing again you're like oh god just like the end of Silence of the Lambs, it's a similar multi-state race against the clock. Some of these things have to be similar because in order to have a, the FBI be involved at all, the serial killer is going to have to go across right. state lines and all that stuff. So it is very reminiscent of Buffalo Bill. And it is scary when you think about it because a lot of times when people think about murder, unfortunately you are thinking about people you know family members because that is usually the case but the scariest thing is when it is random this fucking guy from another state just moving across out of nowhere how do you find a guy like that that's why these movies are so entertaining when you think about those serial killers that allegedly killed like so many people like those insane numbers it is people that it was just so random that like how would anyone ever know who this was right moving to all different areas or whatever not to bum everyone out (laughs) (laughs) Graham and Crawford identify the lab in St. Louis where the films were processed. After determining which employees have seen the films, he and Crawford travel with a police escort to Francis's home. Frankie Faison makes an appearance, and he would reappear as a completely different character in The Silence of the Lambs, where he plays... That's right. Barney. Barney, yeah. yeah, who works at the facility where Lecter is housed. Which he would play also in Hannibal. Yes. It made me realize that in addition to Faison, there's the other guy who's the bug guy in Lambs. One of the bug guys, I believe. Right. right. He's also in this movie, Dan, the actor Dan Butler, playing a different guy. He's still involved with the FBI, but he's not one of those bug guys or whatever. Right. It's weird on the overall series piece, and I'm sure like the book people know this, but after I became familiar with the Red Dragon story. I found it weird that in Hannibal, why does he not go after this Will Graham guy once he's out? 
Yeah, it's probably addressed more in the books. Yeah. I don't know. It, I can't remember if they ever have a throwaway line in any of these movies. Right. Frankie Faison is the only actor to appear in four Thomas Harris Hannibal adaptations. He appeared as Barney in The Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, and Red Dragon, and then a different character, Lieutenant Fisk, in this film. Inside his home, Francis aims to kill Reba with a piece of glass. There's a lot of usage of slow motion during these uh, sequences. Yeah, taking his time with it. Yeah, this is all very artsy and weird. There's just some weird cuts and the slow motion, and then you have that droning on of the Iron Butterfly yeah. song in the background. She's blind, so he basically can just leave her standing. He doesn't even really tie her up because she doesn't even know where she is. It's very disconcerting and, in a way, reminiscent of the darkness utilized by Buffalo Bill. True. I think it's just a way to create that ultimate vulnerability. Not only is she a woman and weaker here, but she is blind and has no clue what the fuck is going on. Of course. Has no idea how dangerous and psychotic this person oh, yeah. is. His home doesn't feel like a regular house. I don't yeah, know I don't what, know what this building is. is. Yeah. The inside is weird, too. And I guess when they're kissing earlier in the movie, that's on his little dock or whatever that's... Yeah, it does seem to be like there's a water situation going on. Some sort of river, like a swampy area. Yeah, this is supposed to be in Missouri somewhere, but I don't know. Yeah. It feels almost reminiscent of the scenes in Florida, like they're down in a swampy kind of area or something. I don't know. It's a desperate race by the police as Crawford and Graham arrive on the scene, and it all builds to a pretty wild finish. Oh, I'd say so. Seeing that Dollar Hyde has someone with him, Graham lunges through a window, <laughs> but is immediately subdued by Francis, who retrieves a shotgun and shoots the lights out, and then yeah. two police officers and injures Crawford. Yeah, not a great showing by the cops here. Yeah, first, well, Graham realizes that not only does he have someone with him, that he's literally in the process of trying to kill a yeah, woman. Yeah, death is imminent. So even though Crawford is trying to convince Graham over the radio Wait not backup. to do anything, he runs and jumps in. I will say that ultimately I love how it looks, and it looks cool, but it's also hilarious because <laughs> yeah. inside, Francis and Reba are not in slow motion, yet... When it cuts to Will running at the window, he's always in slow motion. So it creates this <laughs> thing forever. like he's sl- running so slow. And <laughs> That's it how does, it feels. And when it cuts to Francis, he's sort of like he's gotten up already. He's like, well, come on already. Well, yeah, it does do yeah. the thing where it cuts back and forth. It shows Francis and Reba in regular speed. Then Francis right. notices right. some lunatic that he's never met <laughs> running at his giant window. Immediately ready for battle. That's in slow motion yeah. when we see it the first time. He gets up, but when he gets up off of the table where he's like going to kill Reba, he's back in regular speed. Then it cuts back to Graham again in slow motion. <laughs> You're like, what is going on? And then it times with the music kicking back in, crashes through the window, immediately a mistake. Getting Realizes like slashed and he's like- so much smaller yeah. than this lunatic. <laughs> Who just cuts him across the face, tosses him like a doll, <laughs> like a body slam, basically. Yeah. Then just grabs that shotgun, starts blowing out the lights, and then the the cops, I, I don't know. It's really a clusterfuck because you can't say it's a well 
organized takedown of a suspect. Not a great plan. He should not be able to kill two cops that easily. (laughs) Wounded in the firefight, Francis returns to the kitchen where he is killed by Graham. Graham, Reba, and Crawford are tended to by paramedics, and Graham returns home to his family. So yeah, Francis in this scene is more reminiscent of a pro wrestler tossing the overmatched Graham all around, but I guess the numbers game gets to him eventually. He's got too many angles, too many people coming at him, and then Graham gets the upper hand. What did you think overall about that deleted scene with the potential victims? We mentioned it already, but I guess we're here now where this bloody and battered (laughs) Graham just shows up at their door, but then we realize that this couple, who we guess I guess we saw in the home video a little Uh bit, they were prepared, I guess, by Crawford. They knew this was about to happen, but I don't know. It's I can see why they well, cut guess, it. It's yeah. a weird scene. They were prepared because they're onto this guy. They know this is probably the next family that he's targeting. But how I did they know that it was this family? Because they wouldn't have known until they raided the house. Right. So basically they're saying that Crawford then called them to say Hey, just so you know. Because <laughs> well, the dad is there ready to... With a mullet. And ready to draw his weapon. Yeah, I like, know. It doesn't make any door. sense. You would think they would have had other cops there or something. How far after... Well, it makes it seem like it's that night. Okay, because yeah. it doesn't seem like Will has even cleaned up. But why would that make sense, though, for the Tooth Fairy to suddenly target people in his hometown? Right. Somewhere where Graham can drive that night. The scene plays weird, and I think it's supposed to because obviously Graham is acting bizarre. But I do think it's a cool scene. Well, I think it would it would hit better if we had seen Graham fixating so much on the idea of the next family, which they do allude to that being why he yeah. got suckered back into it. But it never comes across during the movie, and so whenever you include this scene at the end, you are kind of left wondering, was that the family? Like, but you're not even sure who they, these people are. I do think it is trying to convey this weird shared moment, though, because you don't really know who these people are. The idea of saving something, saving people from something that hasn't happened, and he actually is successful in doing that, but it's not like these people actually... It's almost like he's just going there to get credit for something that they didn't even... They wouldn't up? even never know yeah. about. <laughs> hey, just so you know. Right. I'm entitled to your wife. Is now. she going to go to dinner with me or something? <laughs> yeah. By the way, how is that guy with the mullet married to that chick? Yeah. Things that are unbelievable in this movie. Well, this is something we're mullet. talking about now that would only be for people who have seen the director's cut. Oh, yeah. oh, I guess you do see the woman in the home video, but I don't think you ever really see the man that much. So they're like, what guy? What guy's married to her? <laughs> well, believe me, shockingly, it's disappointing. Shockingly, the guy shooting the home videos was not focused on this husband with the mullet. It may have been him, I guess. Yeah. That's why well, That's why they were sort of lingering on the wife's body so much. <laughs> like, get out of the way, kids. <laughs> Dad's doing something right now. <laughs> oh, boy. It kind of bums me out, though, how quickly Molly is just okay with this. I feel like Molly should leave his ass at the end. He promised that he was only going to look at the evidence. Next thing, he's diving through old class window. She's got this nice beachfront estate. That's true. <laughs> she should just shut up and be happy according to Matt <laughs> I don't know I mean I would have been like good riddance Will I'll get the bed to myself for a few nights married Pe- people know what I'm talking about <laughs> Peterson recalled filming the climactic shootout scene at the end of principal photography when most of the crew had already left the production because of time constraints 
With no special effects crew to provide the blood spatter for the gunshots, Peterson described how the remaining crew would blow ketchup across the set through hoses when the effects were needed. Joan Allen related that Mann simulated the impacts of bullets in Dollarhide's kitchen by throwing glass jars across the surfaces so they would shatter where he needed them to. One of these broken jars left a shard of glass embedded in Peterson's thigh during filming. The pool of blood forming around Noonan's character at the end of this scene was intended to allude to the red dragon tattoos Ah. worn by the character in the novel. This shot left Noonan lying in the corn syrup stage blood for so long that he became stuck to the floor. Mm, A practical joke, maybe. Now, how about this? All right. A then-unknown Ted Levine came to the rap party to visit his old friend William Peterson from the Chicago theater scene. A chance meeting with writer and director Michael Mann led to an audition and his subsequent casting in Mann's crime story. Levine, of course, had his breakout performance as James Buffalo Bill Gum in the second adaptation of Dr. Hannibal Lecter books, The Silence of the Lambs. Whoa, what a world. So even though this movie kind of came and went without doing much for anyone in years since, mostly due to the success of the other films and then also the success of Michael Mann and then people appreciating Mann's overall career, this movie has become reappreciated and undergone a, a significant reevaluation where now like the modern day Rotten Tomatoes score I think is very positive, whereas if you would have taken it straight from back in the day, a lot of critics did not like how stylized it was. Yeah. It was specifically criticized for the things that we've been heaping praise on it for. The color, the highly stylized shots, the score. I get it, though. When you see something in the context of that time, obviously I had a different reaction to this movie when I first saw it, and it had been out for 20 yeah, years Yeah, but a point. big part of that, though, was you associating the, uh, the character of Hannibal Lecter with something true. else. Yeah. And this one not having that same kind of reputation because even though it has developed a good reputation now and I think it's even almost beyond a cult film, I would say probably at the time you were watching it, it still was sort of an unknown thing. Yeah, so you're like, yeah. what is Nobody this? was ever talking about it. I've never heard of this. Right. Oh, it's a different one. And yeah, for some reason, like I said, I heard it was a TV movie. So I was like, wait, what is this? <laughs> yeah. I always assumed it was going to be terrible. And then when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's pretty good, but I was still sort of naive and stupid to think the new slick-looking Brett Ratner version was preferable. Right. Which, to be fair, I have not seen Red Dragon now probably for about six or seven years, so I kind of can't remember it now, so... But I do think when something is highly stylized, it can be sort of distracting within the context of the first time you're seeing it whatever you're used to at that time period. That's true. Manhunter's focus on the use of forensic science in a criminal investigation has been cited as a major influence on several films and television series that have come after it, most notably CSI, also featuring Peterson, which was inspired or at least influenced by the forensic sciences in Manhunter. Peterson's sympathetic portrayal of profiler Will Graham has also been noted as helping to influence a shift in the image of the pop culture FBI agent that would continue throughout the 80s and 90s. The film has also been noted as a thematic precursor to the series Millennium, 
John Doe, Profiler, and The X-Files, and to films such as Copycat, Switchback, The Bone Collector, Seven, and Fallen. In 2002, they adapted Thomas Harris's novel One More Time, keeping the original name Red Dragon, Red Dragon made $209.2 million on a $78 million budget, currently holds a 69% on Rotten Tomatoes, so it is fresh, although not overwhelmingly so. Has an all-star cast featuring Norton, Fines, and Hopkins in the main roles. I think we've covered it enough. Sure. I remember it being decent, but it doesn't have any of the artistic flair of something like this. Right, right. It's nothing particularly special. So let's move along to segments. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. I think we have a couple of things to discuss for hmm. recommendations. Do you There's have anything couple? beyond the thing we saw together? Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'll do something else first. Okay. I wanted to talk a little bit about the new Netflix film, Leave the World Behind, starring yeah. Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke, Mahershala Ali, Kevin Bacon is in it as well. Ooh. Got me interested now. I didn't know that. I'll say this. Even though I did not particularly like the film, hmm. and I wasn't thoroughly invested in anything that was happening... I was intrigued enough to stick it out until the end. Now, I understand, I think, a lot of the purpose of what was going on. I, the movie's very heavy-handed with its messaging. I'm not going to get into any of that now because there's a lot of different things in there. But it doesn't really have any satisfying ending. Whatever's happening in the movie, there isn't a definitive explanation or anything like that. And so you're kind of just left with two hours or so of a little bit of a thought-provoking piece with different kind of modern commentaries going on but i don't know it it sort of just left me cold which a lot of netflix movies do where you're kind of like what was the point of this i don't know it didn't really inspire a ton of hope in what's going on with the netflix stuff but i know i don't follow this stuff that closely but i do feel like these netflix movies just sort of show up they have like a little bit of a internet buzz but then it's just like some more than others yeah yeah I figured it was worth exploring just because the cast was intriguing to oh, me, yeah. but it didn't really no. win me over as much as May, December, which was a recent Netflix film That's that we true. both loved. Yeah. So what can you do? So yes, we went to the movies. That's the right. Day. The unthinkable has happened. Yes. There are some things that we may never get to talk about because we just let them go by, but this one, I wanted to see it. Me too. I had heard and enough was, about it. We had already had other attempts at it. Yes. We, of course, are talking about the new Yorgos Lanthimos film, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Willem Dafoe, Rami Youssef, and Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo. It is a very weird movie. Oh, yeah. That is already a box office disaster. I don't think it's going to even come close to recouping half of its money. I was explaining the the way the world is like within the movie as like a Tim Burton mixed with Wes Anderson. Yeah. Like twisted, bizarre. Historical, but more like some of the stop motion Wes Anderson movies, but done through a historical lens or something. But yeah, with that Tim Burton stylized to it. 
Yeah, there are a lot of choices in the movie, and a lot of them initially I was like, oh, no. I will say, the way that it started out, I was like, is this what it's going to be like? Yeah, a lot of the way it looked and the artistic choices at the beginning are rough. Well, even the way the Emma Stone character is acting. Yeah, I figured that wasn't going to last for two hours and 20 minutes. I couldn't imagine. would have been rough. But I, I was thinking to myself, I don't know that I actually ever really watched much of a trailer I had seen a clip of her talking normal, okay. So I knew that yeah. it wasn't going to last, and I and the clip I had seen was in color too. So I knew that there was going to be a change. But yes, the right. first oh that's twenty five right. minutes or so are in black and white, and they use a lot of weird lenses, which cause the screen to look weird, kind of that fishbowl lens and yep. different things like that. And it is weird. It's even weirder than in some ways at least than his other films Lanto Oh yeah. Well, I, 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 that's a hard thing to say cuz there's some really weird shit in all of his movies basically it, it but It feels different than his his more recent efforts. It's so. more stylized yeah. I think in the way of a Tim Burton or right. Wes Anderson or something yeah. where he's creating a unique world because uh, most of his films even though they're really weird and the characters act in ways that maybe people wouldn't act except but for the, the lobster setting, right. Yeah, there's even the lobster. Even though there's something supernatural in it, it seems like it's taking the place on Earth. Like, right. Yeah. This doesn't even feel like it feels almost like a cartoon. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And Willem Dafoe's character is so weird. <laughs> now the movie is very sexual. It oh, is yeah. much like Leave the World Behind. Very heavy-handed. I felt like, but in a fun way. For sure. Like it doesn't take a genius to figure out what they're really talking about. Right. But. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, dude, I, I was, was laughing say, so hard the, a few times. It, it may be the funniest dialogue for something I've experienced in the movie, and like I can't even remember when. I noticed that not everyone there was laughing that much. Well, yeah. So I don't know that this movie works for everyone. I think you have to understand it's weird, but it's a comedy. Because I definitely think if you're not expecting it to be funny, you might be thrown off well, by it. Well, there's probably stuff at the beginning that's funnier than what I took it to be. It takes you a little bit to get the tone and the vibe yeah of the movie and there's definitely dark humor in it too oh it's yeah. not all like no, fun no. and games or anything and it is very even line crossing sexual and weird oh and, yeah but i definitely enjoyed it a lot Me i would too. have it as one of my favorites of the year so far the one thing i took away from it was that is an insane amount of trust between an actress and a director not just because of the nudity which was, a lot, by there the is way. a lot, and it is was surprising. But I thought just because of that first 25, 30 minutes, oh, yeah, like this could be uh, simple Jack, yeah, <laughs> Ben Stiller and Tropic Thunder, yeah, you're really taking a big chance because if this thing turns into like a giant joke or a turkey, you look like an idiot, yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of trust there, and I think she's great in the movie and ends up being hilarious, but yeah, that first bit <laughs> I, I was like oh no <laughs> yeah, Simple yeah seriously all right all right all right you go ahead you go ahead you keep it secret but you remember this when you control the mail you control information okay so i know this episode's already going long but we have a big long email from oh, right yeah long time friend of the show absolutely Shane, so we're going to get into email. This is a little bit of an interactive piece. There's a game element. I sent this to you. That's actually right. a, a good episode that you picked this for, too, because he is a big time Silence of the Lambs. Like, he's really into that book series. Okay, cool. 
Yeah, so sometimes when we go long, we might as well just go all in. Yeah. It's like, if it's this long anyway, we might as well do a long email. Double so down. we'll get to the game element. This is, holy shit, this is long. So <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who feel like you don't care about our emails, maybe we'll talk to you next time because this might end up being like an additional, I don't know. Or we won't because you've unsubscribed. 40 minutes of this. Shane writes, Dear Matt and Zach, sorry for the girth. This email has been a long time coming. But first, a little housekeeping. You can find me on Letterboxd at dot, dot, dot. Just kidding. I've got some shame. (laughs) In response to your prompts, the first ep I listened to was Under the Skin, though I was about a year to a year and a half late and hadn't realized I skipped D2. The early format had a way of burying things. Well, yeah. There was a (laughs) time where we thought we could only put 25 on iTunes or now apple podcast at a time it's been a journey yeah we didn't have any clue how to do anything and we still kind of don't by the way but it's better than then number two it's difficult for me to pick a favorite ep but i'm leaning toward silence of the lambs well, there you go. revisited or the roadhouse two-parter what about the roadhouse revisited well that feels insulting to suggest <laughs> the two-parter was better I, yeah, but if he likes one that early that's that's pretty Dedication. good yeah Honorable mention goes to any ep where you nerds get swept up in the drama of children's programming and also the insane run you did from No Country for Old Men Revisited up to One Trashy Summer ending with Bad News Bears 1976. Hell yeah. Wow, that is a long run. So basically from December of 2022 to May of 2023. Not that I don't adore me some trash, I do, but the first half of 2023 was all absolute bangers that I hold dear. I was struggling with depression at the time, and mm. having two little ass clown angels seemingly speaking directly to me really helped drag me through. Yeah, I don't know if angels is generally accepted. Number three, you did my request, Memento. The relationship I share with that loosely coincides with another prompt you guys flirted with, which was what film got you into movies. To that point, I took... Most movies at surface value with nothing much to differentiate them but subject matter. I had never really considered anything particularly good or bad, just different or maybe not to my liking demographic. Kevin Smith had slowly started to change my perception with Clerks and Mallrats, but a monstrous amount of groundbreaking content released at the turn of the century really swept me up, and I began selecting rentals based on writer-director rather than subject. As far as physical media went, I had a large and random array of VHS but had recently started a DVD collection with Discoveries via my new mindset. Evil Dead, Gladiator, and Reservoir Dogs were among the first, as was Memento. Shane, I got to tell you, this is like ripped straight out of my timeline, too. Yeah, this I was all very that, similar. Well, there was a moment for me, too, where I started to pay attention to who directed something. Yeah. But it was like was, well into watching movies, you know? Yeah, and that was probably a right around Memento for yeah, me, too. Yeah. I always associate that with Requiem for a Dream, which we also did recently granted this was a bit early in nolan's career to fit the mold but an older friend and first cinephile of memory had seen following oh wow wow. and demanded my trust when he gifted me memento nolan has been a favorite since i appreciate your time and take on it as i feel it's now often overlooked it does well i think part of it it is because he did all those other movies with warner brothers so when they get upgraded to 4k memento sort of just left out there in its own because it wasn't part of that world and following went to criterion so that's got its own thing too and 
Memento has sort of been pushed to the side. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it was like regarded as that second wave of indie that was so big at the time. But yeah, because he's gone on to such so great prolific. Heights. It hasn't become a, a curiosity like Donnie Darko, where <laughs> well, Nolan yeah. faded into obscurity right. or anything. Number four, <laughs> so many movie anecdotes, but the first to mind was a blind date. I wasn't quite old enough to drive yet, and my best friend at the time had a new girlfriend who relegated me to third wheel in any plans we made. Apparently, a similar dynamic had formed on her side, and with the three of us needing a ride to the theater, they concocted a scheme. To solve both the transportation and spare tire issues, a surprise fourth party picks me up and I rode shotgun to Mystery Girl's mother in a minivan. (laughs) So wait, he rode up front and the girl was in the back? (laughs) The entire drive, I only hear my quote-unquote date giggling in the back seat with my friend and his girlfriend, never seeing her until we arrive. Oh boy. For context, my graduating class was around 1,000, and these young ladies had gone to a different junior high in the same area. There were a lot of people I didn't know. Anyway, we buy tickets for opening night of The Mummy, but sneak into election. Okay. I'm not sure if he's making fun of the girl's looks. I'm not sure what this Oh, boy. (laughs) I don't know what this means. But... (laughs) It says, and Fred Armisen is desperate to send me home with a hickey. I'm, I'm guessing he's saying the girl looks like Fred Armisen. I don't know. At the end of the show, one of their parents picked them up while my friend's dad scooped us. I learned then this man knew the stakes because as I climbed into his truck, he greeted me with Shane. How was the blind date? Without forethought or hesitation, I blurted, I wish I was blind. Oh, my gosh. I never rewatched Election until the release of your episode 19 years later. Okay. Well, Shane, I'm leaving that in, and if our listeners are upset by that, then they have to blame him. Evil Shane. Number five, this one goes up to Alaska. The Island of Dr. Moreau ranks highly among the greatest worst movies ever. So that was, we had the one. That's right, yeah. Which was one of the most random things we've ever done for a listener. <laughs> Let's just watch the island of Dr. Moreau and talk about it for some reason. Yeah. Now, some unsolicited bullshit. Bring back off the record as an irregular segment, maybe Oof. including books. It never really took. Well, he's saying as a segment? Maybe a segment. Oh, okay. On the show, as a segment, rather? yeah. Not as a yeah, mini sode. Here's the thing, Shane. I, I know Shane is big into music. I don't really care about music at all anymore. So I don't know anything about new music. And yeah, I could go back and talk about the albums that I've loved, but uh-huh. I think most of the albums that I've loved would make me seem cringe and embarrassing. <laughs> Same. In fact, including the ones we've already Yeah, posted. oh, absolutely, yeah. We could just do like another episode on Blink-182. <laughs> I do think that incorporating books would be great, but Matt doesn't read, and I haven't been reading nearly as much as i should if it was like an assignment that was manageable i do think that we could i mean i'm still working my way through the audiobook i think we could maybe branch out give us a seconds into music and books and other things there's probably just more space in the give us a second world probably right 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 now we're struggling just to do regular apps so let's not get carried away yeah i don't know i might catch the fever all right (laughs) Finally, I leave Yins with a few photos and this prompt. Very often we complain about waning originality in Hollywood, but if we spin it the other way, what movies from any decade would you each like to see spawn a sequel oh. 
and a remake. Well, yes. does it have to be the same movie for both? And then he included in light. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. In light of this year's massive Greatest October, one of my favorite directors, and it was a picture of Dario Argento with cheese. So it was Sargento. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I the picture. I'm having a hard time downloading it again to my yeah. phone, so I kind of can't forget, remember what it is. Oh yeah, it was Dario Argento with cheese on his head, and then the Sargento cheese next to him. Okay. And then the grand finale, which we'll we'll come back to in a minute as well, which is this drawing of a bingo card. Yeah, I, I have a picture of this. We'll too. get that in a minute. Yeah. And then he, thanks for your time, your boots, and your motorcycle, Shane. Okay, so the first thing was, which movie would you like to see spawn a sequel and a remake? Oof. Well, honestly, I think that we could probably return to something like this Maybe where we give like a top five each or something, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And do a give us a second. But man, the number one for years for me yeah. was it. And then it happened. Uh huh. And even though I do think part one is reasonable, overall, the whole experience left me cold. Right. And didn't really quite deliver. I understand. Yeah. So I'm still tempted to go back to that well, even though it has been done already. As a remake, not a sequel. I know they're doing a TV show or something, yeah. a sequel or whatever. I don't really care about it for a sequel because I think the story is already its own sequel. It's perfect. It's a, a loop. It's over. It starts when they're young and ends when they're old, and that's mm-hmm. it. And I love that. And uh, I still think that might be my answer for remake. Yeah. Are you saying yes, yeah, that's your answer as no, well? <laughs> no, no. I'm just saying that's a good answer. For sequel... I, there's been a ton of these, but I, I wish there was one that I really liked. I, I would still like to see a sequel to Jurassic Park that I am into. <laughs> I love the first Jurassic Park so much. See, I, I think disagree. I kind of think it's perfect as that they never that needed they were any never sequels. able to. Yeah, the reason why they're all terrible is there's never gonna be a good idea that ever makes sense. Yeah, it's just it's one of those. Things. I just love that universe so much, and I wish I could spend more time there in a way that I was into it. Yeah. But I guess I just, yeah, to your point, it's probably just never going to happen. The other movie that I'd like to see a remake of is also about to happen, and it's going to be on Amazon only. And it's a little picture called Roadhouse. And there we go. Even though the test screenings apparently went really well, we all know that test screenings don't mean shit either way. So I have to say, everything I've been seeing and hearing, I'm not thrilled. I don't know. Maybe I'll be caught off guard and I'll be like, wow, this was awesome. Kind of not expecting that, though. Yeah. Even though Doug Lyman is a competent director and Gyllenhaal usually is pretty solid. I know Kevin's out there nervous that I might disparage Gyllenhaal. But no, I, I like Gyllenhaal. I, I don't have any issue with him being Dalton, but I'm just nervous about the UFC element. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Remake, I, I might have to think on that for a little bit. The things that come to mind for me... I, I walk back because I'm like, I, I, these things don't need to be revisited. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You can't pick anything too great. Right. It's not even that you don't want it to ruin it. It's st- it's like, what's the point? Yeah, right. If I say Jaws is one of my favorite movies, I don't want that to be remade. Totally. Jaws, to me, is a perfect movie. So what would the point of the remake is, even if it's really good? It's kind of like, well... And as far as sequel, Wish Upon a Star. <laughs> All right, so this bingo card. I know. I was actually, I took a picture of this separately because he brought a copy over my house, and I took a picture of it, and I was texting him about it. 
after I post this episode, I will tweet this out. Do you think Shane yeah. would care? No, no, he won't. Okay. He'll, I'll tweet this happy. picture out. It's a greatest pod bingo card. Now, this is probably going to tack on even more minutes to this insanely long episode because I'm going to have to address some of these things. (laughs) (laughs) So across the top, it says B-I-N-G-O, and then we have one, two, three, four, five down the side. So there's a lot of squares here. (laughs) The first one is great. Okay. So B1 says Zach ignores Matt's input. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to address this one. Okay. That is probably sometimes the case, but I sometimes cut out myself saying yeah after I've said yeah 45 times. Oh, sure, yeah. So sometimes it does sound like in the final product, I'm just moving on abruptly, and then in real life, I did actually acknowledge something you said. Sometimes we're just not listening to each other, too. That happens. I won. Matt has no input. (laughs) That's more on him. Yeah, but I think that's a joke to be one. Don't you think? (laughs) Yeah. Right. N1 folks, in yeah. quotes. I mean, that's every episode. I defy you to find an episode that doesn't have folks. Probably this one. <laughs> G1 sound problems. We that's got rid of the find. worst ones. Yeah. Those were the early days. But, but they are sprinkled throughout. We do still have volume issues. Yeah. I hope I hope that I can correct most of them, but sometimes mm-hmm. you can tell. O1, Matt's hyped for Greatest October, not in October. That is a good one. It used to come up a lot more than it does now. B2, Seinfeld anything. Yeah. I2, shits on a request. <laughs> I don't feel like I've done that in a long time. <laughs> I think that happened really just once, Yeah, right? but... Uh, Maybe twice. Yeah. <laughs> I would think at least five times. <laughs> Are you thinking of only the old days? It's hard for me to re- remember what makes the show and what doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. N2, friend of the show... Brian Bell. Yeah. G2 rankings. I don't know. I guess we do, yeah. We used to do some rankings and stuff. Sometimes we still do. It happens from time to time. O2 episode ends with Alone by Heart. We don't do that anymore. Yeah, that hasn't been in a long time. I do miss it. B3 complaint about runtime. Oh, yeah. Of the movie or of the podcast? Probably both. I3 revisited. N3 casual sexism. <laughs> That's just parentheses free <laughs> is that us saying the phrase casual sexism or, the, or us or being casually because <laughs> both happen yeah. i would imagine <laughs> g3 off mic which we did in this episode yep. oh three summer camp anything that's a deep cut too we haven't it, yeah it's been a few years since we did that we've probably juice revisited season i know but we've probably referenced summer camp in the yeah. in 2023 B4, self-deprecation, five times. <laughs> five times. I4, friend of the show, Keith. Oh, yeah. N4, ass clown. I do think ass clown has it's come faded. and gone. Yeah. It comes back sometimes, and then it'll, we won't I'm say sure it for a while. I'm sure that's the thing. If somebody started listening to the show in the last couple of years, they probably don't know what that is. G4, give us a second. O4, complaint about runtime. And episode is equals two plus hours. I think I had asked him like for G four. Is that us talking about doing a give us a second, or is that a give us a second episode? And I think he said it was doing a give us a second episode. So yeah, some of these you can only check off if it's right. a revisited or a give us a second. Yeah, the complaint about runtime and ep equals two plus hours is <laughs> that one's incredible. Yeah, that 
really jumped out to me when we did the Scream 2 episode, and I'm editing it, and I'm listening to me go on and on about how the movie's way too long, and then the episode is longer than the movie. (laughs) B5, Matt compares something to The Wire. That was definitely like a first 50 thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see it on here, but that was also to you bringing up cereal, which I brought up in this episode. (laughs) I5. We'll get to that. It's in my notes. <laughs> that was so good. I can't stand that Matt yeah. does things out of order, even though he does not have my notes. <laughs> N5 separates art from artist, and he gives an example, the Weinstein elephant acknowledged, not discussed. <laughs> acknowledged, I think that's completely discussed. fair, though. I don't, well, yeah. Why would we be the people to discuss it? I don't think that would be good for anybody. <laughs> I don't anybody. think he's taking a shot at us here. G5, friend of the show, Eli Roth. (laughs) And O5, irregardless, not a real word, Zach. Well, come on. A word in common usage. Yeah, I think sometimes. Yeah. You have to. It's acceptable in Scrabble. Okay, Kelsey Grammer. (laughs) Folks, this one is longer than Manhunter. (laughs) The, The runtime of Manhunter, two hours. This one, much longer. Anyway. Thanks so much for listening. I know that these episodes are coming out at a more leisurely pace. That'll probably be how it is for now. We're living in now, folks. But don't worry. Your listener requests will come out either in the month that's already been promised or even earlier if one day I say, fuck it, and let's just do the listener requests all in a row because we're never doing this show again. So that you don't need to worry about. But in general, you know, once a week or so with – Probably a few give us a second still sprinkled in there, but we may miss weeks now and again, or it may be more than seven days in between ups. Sure. I don't know. We may get back onto a regular schedule at some point. I, I don't know. But in the meantime, at Greatest Pod on X slash Twitter, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podbean. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And thank you so much for those of you who have done so. And thank you so much for listening to the show and thank you to our listeners who have generously given us their hard-earned money to do listener requests which is admittedly a lot of work but it is just a silly show about us talking about movies so we do appreciate you and totally we love it and the people listening to the show are honestly the only reason we're still doing (laughs) it at this point because we wouldn't be doing it for us anymore eight years now yeah we're coming up on our anniversary once again, so I've wow. never stuck with anything this long. And actually, if we could keep doing this, that would even be true about my marriage. You know what I mean? Like, if we keep doing this, I'll be doing this For show. For six more weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've got a big head start, too, so. That's right, yeah. I feel like we've we gotta, probably already we got to keep it. the pace. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're good. <laughs> Let's be real. Folks. <laughs> Anyway, let us know if you'd like a free sticker. And as we said, right now, I think probably one listener request slot left in 2024, and that would be in August. If you want it, it can be yours for $100. Any narrative feature that we have access to, as long as it's streaming somewhere or on Blu-ray or something, we can make that work. So get in touch with us. Greatestpod at gmail.com is where that can happen. And we'd love to read your emails on the show like we did with Shane. So hit us up there. Anything else, Matt? No. Let's get out of here. 2024. Here we go. Big year. All right. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.
There's a lot going on at this Somerville home. There are two adults, three kids, more than 60 animals, including some fish, and a whole bunch of moose turds. Mary Winchenbatch runs Turdy Works. It's art made from the stuff that moose leave behind. Everyone takes a crap. Everyone goes to the bathroom, so everyone can relate to that. And every, the terms that I use to name these products are everyday terms that, you know, people are used to hearing and stuff. So it just kind of, you just try to, you know, combine the two to, to come up with something halfway decent that's funny, you know. For example, the first thing that we make now, instead of a cuckoo clock, see, this is a poo-poo clock. And what we did see is we took them turds and we crammed them in between the number there, so that's one thirty, two thirty, three thirty. That's just one of many products she offers. Now over here we make fecal people. And depending upon the shape of them middle turds right there, we can do them with big boobs or guts or butts or long legs or short legs. See, because there's no two turds that are ever alike. Have you ever seen a turd, the two turds alike? Guess not. No. Mary says half the battle is getting her product, but to do that, she doesn't have to travel far. The turds are all local. We just go out and track the moose, and, and wherever the moose are, they're going to take a crap. And I, I have found that when a moose takes a dump, you walk about 50 yards in any direction, and they take another dump. It's a fairly simple and efficient business model. And when a moose takes a dump, they'll crap out between two and 400 turds every time they, they take a crap. So it's like I, I get five bucks a turd for these things. So I get jumping right up and down. I get excited when I see a turd. Since going viral, she doesn't know what her next local stop will be. But she's upping her game with a new Turdy Works Facebook page to peddle her poop. Get on there, and that's all my turds are on that, on that page right there with the prices. And click on them, and then get to me and let me know what you need for turds. And I ship it everywhere.